You understand the meaning of the word foreboding? As in badness is happening right now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Well, you guys are a hell of a duet here. Why'd you start harmonizing? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need you. Because lobsters live for over 100 years. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, make some noise. That's for John Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. years ago, Dr. Parnassus made a deal with the devil. Stop! You're probably not a betting man, are you? To gain immortality. It's been a while. But this came with a price. Any child who at the age of 16 belong to him. <gasps> now, a mysterious outsider. Can you put a price on your dreams? We'll take the traveling show beyond their imaginations. The extraordinary Dr. Parnassus. What are you doing? Trying to save your daughter's life, sir! You can save her. What do you say? First to five souls. Voila. Voila. Hello, everybody. This is Above the Title, your favorite podcast about the state of the 21st century movie star. It might, I don't know, there's got to be a couple more out there. Um, I'm Connor. I'm Cole. And we have our guest today. Do you, do you want to? Uh, yeah, we have her? our special guest today. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca Sweeney joins us today. Hello, Becca. Hello. And, and uh, uh... this is, uh, you know, our inaugurate season talking about the life and career of Colin Farrell, one of our favorites. And today, Cole, what, what movie are we talking about today? Because it's, uh, I don't know, this may... This may unfold before us <laughs> in an unwieldy this, nature. <laughs> this is this is a weird one, both both in terms of the actual movie we're talking about and in kind of its place in Colin's career. And one that Colin has spoken of mm-hmm. as being one of the more meaningful projects he ever worked on. An important experience for him. For reasons that have actually nothing to do with the content of the film. And he even specifies that when he says it, that it's like, it is not the movie, it's the shoot that mattered. Um, This is the 2009 Terry Gilliam film, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Uh, Stupid title. Just going to put that out there. Whoa. I know. Whoa. I... I I have say a weird it. relationship to this movie. Well, say what you told me the other day. I, I asked Cole the other day. I texted Cole. This was this was a joke. Let me put that out there. I like I knew I knew I it know. wasn't real, but I, I said, know. "Is this movie related to the um, Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, or <laughs> or do I not need to watch it?" And Cole responded, "Just yes." <laughs> that question. Um, um, see, that's just Jeff. Jeff, my husband, you said the same thing that he can't help but think it's the Dustin Hoffman flick every time because I mentioned this movie not all too infrequently. I, I, I think of this movie a lot, actually. You've you've told me um, I've never seen Mr. McGorium's Wonder Reporium. To be clear, a worse title. Like, I also didn't uh, watch undeniably. It a worse title a movie we could pr- will probably end up doing on this podcast at some point both, both sound like some sort of fucking ronald doll well book, honestly that's what it is is i 
it's the Unless... word imaginarium. It like it. Can I tell you something funny? It's putting like a little too much of a button on it right oh going into the movie considering terry gilliam's like other work that considering that terry gilliam named the movie brazil just like based off of a song that plays a great great title like most terry gilliam movies have good titles like the man spent 20 years trying and failing to make a movie just because he liked the title (laughs) Um, yeah that is and that's the man who killed don quixote which is uh, a great title. Which is a great title. But also, yeah. I don't know if you guys... Did either of you see The Man Who Killed Don Quixote when it came out? No, no. but I loved I reading s- about it. But you you know the, the the arc of that movie, though, right? That he like tries to make it with Johnny Depp. Disastrous shoots. Makes it again with Driver 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Different scripts. Like, from the beginning. Completely different concepts for a movie. Oh, I didn't know that. It's just the title and like a take on Don Quixote because the one he tried to shoot with Depp in like 2001 is about a modern day guy who falls through a time portal and ends up meeting Don Quixote. And the one that came out in theaters is about a director, like having to deal with an actor who's gone crazy and thinks he's actually Don Quixote. They're completely different bits it's just that that title's so good i had known i like i was aware of the rumor or whatever legend urban legend myth of terry gilliam had this movie that he's been trying to make for like 25 years and then somehow it came out and i i I did not know it came out until like 2020 when i was looking at his wikipedia page it's really (laughs) bad and i say this as like terry gilliam's last true soldier um it's terrible was jonathan price always on no cast no so that was a different that's it's i was reading through this whole saga because um he tried to make it as just like a stray quixote movie in the 80s too um but it's he was mostly cycling through like french and spanish character actors um in in the early in the early versions, Cleese John Cleese was attached at one point. Um, Jean Rochefort uh, was, I believe, the guy they actually shot with. Um, but Price, I think, is just a you know an obvious guy to bring on because he's worked with Gilliam so so many times. Um, let me look this out. Let me tell you, though. Yeah, it was always price for the version that actually ended up getting made. That was always going to be price. Not bad in the movie, to be clear. Yeah, Connor. Sorry, I thought I I didn't realize you were still going. No, it's okay. To almost cut you off there. Um, I'm not the only one who... (laughs) At one point, I did Google, is Mr. McGorium's Wonder Emporium related to the Imaginarium of Dr. (laughs) Pornarsis? Just because I was so worried that, like, somehow it, it actually was and me assu- me assuming in joke mode that it wasn't it was gonna like lead me astray and i was like maybe <laughs> i actually do have to see this movie and then i realized that there are like so many other people just regular people who have put on message boards i thought heath ledger was in this movie when oh, he no. show up and it's... then people in the comment section being like you're thinking of the imaginarium of dr parnassus that's a different movie what if two thirds of us on this podcast watched that movie by accident? 
but like like say Cole was the only one to watch the right movie and you and I just start riffing about Natalie Portman and Dustin Hoffman we should have done that god damn it we should have done that I love bits yeah um but then we would have had to talk about a, a, a bad kids movie from what I understand have not seen it have not seen it, but then we'd have to spend a lot of time you know, talking about what is most you know likely a less interesting film. That movie, right? I have no idea. It's it's Zach Helm, who oh. had written Stranger Than Fiction, <laughs> he... which was the Will Ferrell, Mark Forster, like Charlie Kaufman knockoff. Yeah, you know what That's else he good. had written? That's what I'm saying. You know what else he <laughs> He's one of, well, because Because I have, Cole, I have that title card burned into my brain. <laughs> every, but he, you, you do have to remember that every single screenwriter in Hollywood wrote Deepwater. <laughs> yeah, that is, uh, from what I understand, Every single screenwriter took a pass at Deepwater at some point. Uh, Beck, have you seen Deepwater? The, no, I no, I the haven't. Affleck to Armas <laughs> sex thriller. Oh God, already not interested. <laughs> Boo! I'm gonna get one of these days, Connor. It it comes up on like every episode of this podcast, Becca, because again, every time we mention a screenwriter, there's a decent shot <laughs> They're, like, that they did a pass like, yeah. on that movie because it was a development <laughs> for 20 years. Um, Ew, Sam Levinson worked on that. Levinson's okay. credited. Let's did a lot on it. Um, yes, Sam Levinson wrote it. It's a it's the one good thing Sam Levinson has worked on. Okay, stop trying to but, use this against me. <laughs> but you, I, I think you've admitted that the the script is not the script is bad. The script yeah. is bad. It's just well directed. Okay. Um, I was about to say speaking of movies where the script is bad but it's well directed, but I'm not sure if I think that or if I think the other way around. Uh, the Imaginary Doctor Parnassus. Becca, you love this movie. I do. I actually was. Yeah. And it's so funny because I was telling you guys that there was like tornado warnings today um, that I honestly have a vivid memory of coming across this on HBO. I recorded it off my DVR because on the list of cast members, when I just searched Johnny Depp, this movie came up. This was during Mm. my Johnny Depp phase. Yes. Um, I'm so fairly certain I've watched this movie as a kid in my basement while my parents' weather machine is going off. So this was like the full package, nostalgia package for me today. But like... That's so unrelated. But like, I I do really enjoy this film. But this most recent rewatch and the first time I showed Jeff, which was probably like two, three years ago, I was bored. I think I remember liking it way more as a kid. But that's because especially somebody who's just looking to see a Johnny Depp movie. This one comes out of nowhere. Truly does. And this was even before Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I wasn't even going chronologically. I was just going searching on my DVR Johnny Depp of recording anything I hadn't seen. Um. When would this have how been? I came across this movie? When would this was have that? been? Do, do, Ooh, do you gosh. know like what year this was? I'm just curious. Probably how... 2009, probably around the time this movie came okay, out. So, it, was, yeah. it was scrolling through Showtime or HBO. Oh, okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because I I saw this fucker in theaters. Really? Uh, because I'm not joking when I say I'm Gilliam's greatest soldier. It didn't uh, do horribly. This isn't one of those did. examples that we're talking oh, about. It's yeah. one of his. I, I believe it is his best received movie of the 21st century. Uh, um, Grim Grim might have made more money, but Grim was an expensive disaster. Yeah, and uh, Byzantium. What was that one called? 
Is it Byzantium? Byzantium? Is a Neil Jordan movie? No. What's the one? What's the with like the with zero uh, Christoph theorem? Waltz? The, the zero, zero theorem. theorem. I don't know a why movie in my head was like I Byzantium. Like, and I think I actually think this and Zero Theorem are weirdly like two peas in a pod. Um, because just for Ch- Gilliam context, you know, he has this really good '90s where he makes The Fisher King, which wins an Oscar for Mercedes Rule, is a huge hit. Um, he makes 12 Monkeys, which is like the greatest movie ever made. Um, and he makes Fear and Loathing, which is like a, a big movie of the era. Very iconic. His, his you know? 2000s is a fucking nightmare um, because you have The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, which shoots for a week and is such a disastrous production that there's a like a feature length feature length theatrical release documentary about mm-hmm. how bad that shoot was. That movie never gets finished. Brothers Grimm is this like real softball down the middle commercial play that bombs crazy. Tideland is Tideland, right? I don't know if you two have seen Tideland. That movie is aggressively unpleasant. Um, (laughs) And so critics hate it and it was never going to make any money. Um, Tideland is like his Alice in Wonderland movie where it's like a little girl living on a farm running around in the woods and like, Things are happening and she's a child, so she can't process it. But I guess vague spoilers for Tideland is that um, the movie opens with her dad ODing on heroin and dying. And she thinks he's just taking a long nap. So she keeps like tending the body uh, over the course of like the weeks this movie takes place over. You'll be shocked to hear this. People did not like Tideland. (laughs) (laughs) So I think... As they lay dying. Yeah. I think this one, it is actually very as they lay dying. Um, I think this one is him being like, let's play the hits. Let me make Munchausen again. Um, And to some degree, it's a success. And then Zero Theorem is even more aggressively him being like, I am just remaking Brazil. Um, And that thing bombs hard. Is that the Uh, Christoph Waltz? That's the Christoph Waltz, Matt Damon one, uh, which is, again just brazil again uh with tilda swinton um except less engaging because it's christoph waltz and not his career best performance but not as good not as good as i will no it's not as fucking good as brazil and this isn't as good as moonchild no but i'm saying his performance isn't as good as that lead performance no price no i love Connor, I asked you after we recorded last night, uh, last week, if you had seen this, and you said no. And then I asked you, like, how much tolerance you have for Terry Gilliam's bullshit, and you said very <laughs> little. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's I I'm not. Uh, I don't know how to approach this. Um, I haven't seen, obviously, like a, a decent amount of his films. I guess I haven't seen The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Don't. I haven't seen yeah. Tideland. Do. Um, I haven't seen The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. That's insane. Um, you should watch that movie. I know. That's a big one for me. I have seen The Brothers Grimm. I have Oof. seen Fear and Loathing. I have seen Brazil. Yeah. I have seen Fisher King, 12 Monkeys. Great, um, great, great. I love his ability to distantiate you from the screen, like, no matter how mundane the scenario that he may be depicting is. Um but I really, really, really dislike. I'll put it this way: I don't, I don't like the stuff in Twelve Monkeys that takes place in the future 
but I like everything that takes place in the the present day 1990s of that film. That's ridiculous. Does that make sense? No, that's ridiculous. I, I don't really I don't really appreciate much of the the art design of of those feature sequences, but I like I love how alienating it feels when he goes back to our present because sure he captures that like outcast outsider mentality so perfectly sure but also the yeah. future stuff in that movie is incredible the future stuff in that okay. movie is so good it like births jean-pierre Genet. and i'm i'm just not that's a jean-pierre Genet joke for all the fucking <laughs> cinema to look heads out there <laughs> i'm just not as res- I'm, I'm just not as receptive to that yes. kind of aesthetic expressionism it's not even it's germanic in a way but it's not i don't like how untethered it feels to laws of physics (laughs) or or laws of of relation yeah which is like a huge complaint again that that critics brought up regularly and regularly against imaginarium but it's actually not a problem that I have with <laughs> Imaginarium, believe it or not. I was yeah. going to ask you do, you, do you feel that way about this movie? I haven't seen 12 Monkeys, so I don't know how. Ooh, you should watch 12 Monkeys. I, I, yeah, yeah. I w- I've been meaning to get to Brazil for a long time. And I honestly remember ask, you know, mentioning that recently. And it, it didn't stem off of you asked me to be on the podcast. I was just like, man, Brazil, like it's just been on my mind for so long. So much so I didn't even realize it was Terry Gilliam. But um. Like, I, I also have a lot of, like, it's not really my cup of tea. I would think the art direction in, in this movie, because I can't really derive from the other ones. But yeah. uh, the, the art direction here, obviously, Oscar nominated. So that's yes. quite yeah. wild. Um, but Maybe it you should is, have won. Yeah, what else? I mean. Avatar, Avatar wins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not really a movie that's art directed. Um, let me pull this up real quick. I was looking at this earlier. Um, I'll go further and just nine, as you're looking something up. Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I actually really like the art direction in in that Richie Sherlock Holmes. Um, I love those movies. Some of the yeah. best Richie movies, like in in the Richie Sherlock. Yeah, Sherlock Holmes is probably the third best guy Richie movie. I think the second one is is pretty good too. I would say the second one great. A strong sequel. Strong sequel. No, the second one's awful i don't think it's i don't think it's that dude the slow motion looks pretty cool in the beginning of the second one when they're running through Uh, the uh the forest though hey you get more jared harris how could you how could you not like the second piece you know mark strong's not and new me uh new me you see that's what it is is that we'll we'll talk about this hollywood new me Never, never good. It, it was never, never, it, it never, never worked. We're gonna yeah. talk about like the worst example of it. On this let podcast. me, let me, before we stray too far, let me just go back. <laughs> I think what works best about Brazil is that Brazil does not feel necessarily tethered in a direct one to one relation between yes. what what exists in our world and our history as it is, and the world that that film is creating. And then for me. 12 monkeys feels very disjointed because of that questioning how you get from a to b that question but it's inevitably exists because of the conceit of that film and then but i it's think there in jete too it is but there's he something pulls about the designs from marker i know but there's something about the the ubiquitous like low 
it's not even low budget it's like lacking of um material nature of but they don't have resources that's They're what I'm a saying. post-resource yeah. society that's what's interesting it's all scrap it's an entire society built of scrap metal you don't have like machines just like floating around the room you're like questioning why these scientists look the way that they do in 12 it's monkeys so like, cool. that doesn't exist in jete um I'm just using 12 yeah, Monkeys Marker, as Marker an example. That, movie for a dollar. that 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 aesthetic, I think, rises and falls throughout Gilliam's filmography. Yes. And I think when it hits its fever pitch is when I'm is when I'm the least into his films. Interesting. Yeah. And when it subsides, you're not gonna like Munchausen when, when you watch that masterpiece. When it subsides and it seems like he's more in the realm of allegorically exploring things that we're dealing with in our regular lives that that's when i feel okay you would like thailand um yeah munchausen's interesting i wish i wish you two had seen it it does sound like i would like munchausen i mean it does sound like i would like thailand from the yeah i'm just i think i think this movie and munchausen are, are so interesting as a pair because you know obviously terry gilliam gets his start as an animator Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because he's in Monty Python, um, but it's very rarely an on-screen role in Monty Python. He's doing all the animated interstitials, uh, in in the TV show and in the movies, um, and then he directs Holy Grail. Um, Munchausen really feels like it's him trying to make an entire movie that's in live action that looks like that cut. Co- cut out collage animation style that he's doing in Monty Python. Um, but because it's 1988, it's all practical. It's all optical effects. It's all like weird sets and costumes um, and, you know, camera trickery. This movie, I think is him going back to that. Well, but with, with computers, right. That he's like, Oh, I can yeah. make this whole thing with computers and that's where i think he gets lost in the sauce a little I agree. yeah I, um, I immediately i can already tell i'd be way more interested in the previous ones like jeff and yes. i've been watching a lot of twin peaks and uh i had the benefit of having all of twin peaks in front of me versus mm-hmm. having to wait 25 years or whatever uh to actually see it in its full form and i get just like i get lost in the lynch sauce a little bit i i'm not really into the like very eccentric side of of lynch which is always there but you i think you know what i'm talking about yes and i think with terry gilliam i'm i'm kind of the same way and he even falls into the pitfall of like when he gets modern technology that it just loses its charm i'm like i can sit with like really interesting and very out there practical effects more than i can computer generated like yes i've been thinking about this a lot in the time since I watched it and this it's straight. It's so weird that this came out in the same year that avatar came out because this is, is like one of those examples that screams like you watch, you watch films that look like this from the two thousands, not the 2010s. And you get reminded of this time when we're still trying to discover what CGI is not, not capable of doing, but what is CGI actually good at doing as opposed to stuff that, practical effects can do and mm-hmm. we're still in this stage of experimentation at this time and but, but it's so it's so funny that it comes out in the year where avatar almost like cements uh, it, it comes out a like, week 
after Avatar. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. just come out the same year. It comes out the week after. And I, we mentioned it already, but Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes is like, I truly think one of the all-time great cases of CGI as set extension. Yeah, I think that's probably true if, because if the entire set decoration of that yeah. movie is CGI. But the, uh, but the way what? it blends real yeah. spaces and props with the digital extensions of it. And to be fair, if you don't get if you don't get a film like that, if you don't get a film like Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes, you don't get the stuff that Scorsese is going to do in Wolf of Wall Street and The Irishman, yes. where he's like really blending CGI to be able to create locations that are unfeasible at his budget or just time of of making the project that he's working on and other filmmakers aside from him as well who use cgi very well sorry becca what were you gonna say i uh just like when i was saying like you just kind of lose its charm a little bit i think gilliam was like he got his point across pretty well and i know that it's his visual style and i was there to be locked in but because it's kind of lost its charm i i like I had a hard time like really connecting with it. Um, I had a thought and it flew out of my brain. I mean, like I would be curious to see what he, how he would have tacked this movie in say 98 or yes. 97 even. Yeah. I, I read an interview with him from the time of this movie where, because the first time it goes into like a fantasy sequence, it's very theatrical right like they're on a set and it's just like there are these trees that are clearly two-dimensional props just like painted on balsa wood that they're like moving through and it's 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 a constructed space that's not meant to look real and he threw out that when he was planning the movie that was going to be the look of everything and he doesn't Say, I love that idea. I say right now, like tune. I, I love he, that idea. He doesn't say what made him abandon that. It's clearly not in. I have a theory, though, and my theory is that to make a movie that looks like that, you need a lot of money and you need a lot of prep work. And to make a movie, and you need that a looks, lot of people. Yes, and people yeah. to make a movie that looks like that digitally like with cgi you need a lot of money you need a lot of people and you don't need a lot of prep work the thing with terry which Gilliam, is this is a mechas idea right which is, is why zemeckis yes. did these mocap cgi movies because he was essentially like i could do whatever i want and i, I that's yes. not possible with the budgets i'm being given but the, the difference because we didn't ask for it <laughs> the difference between zemeckis and gilliam is Zemeckis is this like crazy perfectionist, right? Even when the movies suck, he's got this like vision that he's going to nail down. And part of why he wants to move into these fully digital productions is because he doesn't want other people interfering with what he wants to do. He wants to be able to like create performances out of whole cloth. Just give me all the reference material and I'll edit a performance together. Gilliam trying to see how I can say this politely. Um, Sarah Pauly had this essay that went around around the time women talking came out because her memoir came out then it was, it was an extract from her memoir because, you know, Sarah Pauly obviously was a child actor and her first, if not her first then one of her first movies is Baron Munchausen, um, which she is the lead in. And it was a pretty harrowing piece about like how her life 
was constantly in danger on the set of that movie because of how lax the safety standards were. Um, and the real takeaway that that I got out of reading this piece was that T- Terry Gilliam is almost pure id as a filmmaker in a way that's not productive. Um, and mm. the thing is, if he's just like, and I think that's why his sets, his films are always these like nightmarish shoots because they're so complex, right? And if the thing is, he used to be able to paper that over with money. And I think by the time he's making this movie, the money's run out. Yeah. Um, Because obviously this movie has this calamitous production disaster that happens halfway through the shoot that is no one can see coming. We'll talk about it. It's the thing to talk about. But they're already out of money when that happens is the thing. Um, and that just throws a further wrench in it. And I think he's trying to paper over it with CGI, but then he doesn't have the money to do good CGI either. So you're left with something that's, that's unsatisfying at all fronts. That's what I'm saying about how weird that yeah. it is that this came out at the same time as Avatar, because I guess what I'm trying to say is this is a time when we were still discovering how expensive good CGI yes. still like how how resource intense good CGI still proved to be. Yeah. At the same time, Avatar is showing it's like, no, you actually have to spend like a billion dollars for your movie to look this way. Avatar, <laughs> Avatar looks bad. Yeah, but I will I will go to the mat on this. Avatar looks bad. In 2009, that is better than... did you think it looked bad? Yes, I did. Cool. In 2009, I was like, it, my 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 understanding of the reality that we as human beings live in was like shook when I saw that Here's, movie. In 2009, my takeaway from Avatar, which is still my takeaway from Avatar, is this looks substantially uglier than painting actors blue. What? And the thing about Avatar The Way of Water is that Avatar The Way of Water looks substantially better than painting actors blue. <laughs> like, the 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 tech caught up to James. I think that's right? that's probably a fair statement. I, I I don't I don't think it's the people in the original Avatar that I was like kind of blown away by. I think it was like the way the fauna looked and the, the way fauna the light it, coming through the uh, other the, the way the light was playing with the environment. It doesn't. In the original, but that's the thing. In the original, none of it looks better than if you did it for real. And in the sequel, it all looks better than doing it for real. Like I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm I know, just but you can, the original you can tell was still me, pretty like shocking in how yes, it looked. You can tell me out. the light yeah. logan through the funnel looks nice. You know what else looks nice is going to a jungle and shooting it for real with real light. Yes, you know? of course. <laughs> of course. It's why I like, don't term- disagree with you. Yeah. Uh unfair. that's an unfair I... take to have on that movie, I think. I, I think it's uh because you mentioned it the the first time we go inside of the Imaginarium, it starts yes. off almost it's very practically like he yeah. goes through and it's the paper cut out trees and eventually he like unveils this like cloudscape uh, that then thus starts the rest of the movie essentially yeah. and I think that first that honestly that first time he goes into the that that drunk really trains you on the rest of the movie. It kind of suspends your disbelief a little bit. It gives us a taste of what it could have been. And then um, also establishes the sort of like change of identity that can happen in the Imaginarium that then sets the the scene for 
the rest of the Heath Ledger replacements, the standards, the A-list standards. The only other big effect scene in this movie that is primarily practical is the Jude Law stuff. Um, well, which conversely, I don't know if that's practical. I actually uh, think the feral. The feral stuff is much more. The, but the feral stuff—they're all on—they're all on green screens until they get into the until they get into the the, the room. Yeah, um, but once they're there, once they're there, yes. Yeah. A, a lot of the latter stuff is like them against a backdrop, and that's why it looks so minimalist, right? Like there's there's CGI extensions going on, but like by that point they're really out of money, and that's why it's just what if they're just on swaying ladders against like a solid background? They're out of uh, money, but they're they're out of time too because they're out read, of time. Yeah, you read in the interviews, and it's like Johnny Depp was literally there for at like a half a day. Yeah, and if you're not shooting on green you screen, you're not you going to see his face. There. You see Johnny Depp's face less than you remember. Johnny yeah. Depp's face in when you're actually watching this movie. They had him, I think they had him for a day and a half. Um, but still, which also like, I'm just gonna say this, Mr. Mr. Terrence Gilliam. You can sit here and you can bitch as much as you want about not having time and not having money. And need I remind you, Connor, Joel Schumacher shot the opening scene of Phone Booth, which Becca, have you seen Phone Booth? Uh, yeah, Colin Farrell, right? He's yeah. in that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh just just to remind you if it's been a while, the opening like 10 minutes of Phone Booth is this like long handheld bit where Colin is making his way through all of Times Square, like the entire stretch of it, moving through the crowds, taking phone calls, getting stopped by people and talking to them. Uh Joel Schumacher shot all that in a morning. So don't tell me you only have Johnny Depp for a day and a half, Terry. It is on you, ultimately, I think. The the farther we get away from those films, the more it's proven that Joel Schumacher is like the best the director anti, alive. The anti-Gilliam, <laughs> the anti-Michael Mann. Just like you give me, you give me what you have, and I'll get a product for you. <laughs> uh it'll have some quirks. It'll, there there'll be something of interest in the movie. So Becca, normally I ask people why they picked this movie, uh, but I actually pitched this one to you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I tell the story? Yeah, go for it. Because I think it's funny. Um, Mm -hmm. So a month ago yesterday, uh, happy anniversary, by the way, uh, I was at your wedding. Um, Congratulations. Yes. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. and, And you two, instead of a regular guest book, you had printed out like cards and each card was a movie that one of the two of you or both of you like that you wanted us to sign. And I'm rifling through it just because I'm curious. And I see mm-hmm. Parnassus on there. Now I was under the impression that your husband had never seen this movie uh, <laughs> because I had actually asked him like a week before your wedding, if he wanted to be on this episode and he said, he never seen this movie um, oh, because at, at the point, be careful, Cole. We thought we were going to have to not release his episode. That he was on of this podcast because of audio oh, yeah. issues. Um, so oh. I was trying to get see what other one he wanted to be on. Um, so I clocked that and I'm like, Becca's got to love Parnassus. No one wants to be on this episode for some reason, <laughs> which is insane, to be clear. I think this movie's fascinating. Uh, so I cornered you at your wedding and basically browbeat you into being on this episode. <laughs> And you, I think you know what I told you. I said immediately yes. And yeah, I, you were I definitely, yeah. yeah. And I was, I didn't realize that you had asked Jeff, and Jeff 
essentially lied to you and saying he hadn't seen this movie before. I don't think he was super paying attention to me at the time. Um, must but must not have, whatever. because he was like, yeah. isn't it funny that, because uh, we rented it on Prime to watch it before the podcast, and he's like, oh, it's so funny, it was still queued up to the credits, and the last time we watched it, like, three years ago. So he remembers. He remembers. But uh, at first, I, I honestly thought that you jumped to the conclusion that I liked this movie. Well, I did. Um, which I thought was an astute observation. Oh, well, I thought it was based on yeah. Jeff's. It also seems more of a you movie than a Jeff movie, to be to be it, clear. It does have Johnny Depp, and that it was the main I wasn't gonna say that, draw. but yeah. Uh not the only Johnny Depp movie we're gonna be doing this podcast. With Colin Farrell, huh? Oh, oh you oh, can oh, oh. oh Becca, yeah. you can pull this one. One of the I twin. Sh- Remember when I was talking about how there's like twin Colin Farrell movies? Yes, it's yes, odd that this is one this. of the twin Colin Farrell movies. Yeah. Mm. Becca, Johnny would Depp you like in, me to spoil? Uh, 2016. Oh, let's play yeah. this game. 2016. Would you like me to spoil oh. what the twinning effect is here? That no, somehow, don't spoil it. Yeah. No, that also, is funny because I know he's Grindelwald. Yeah, or yeah, this yeah. is one of yeah. two movies where Colin Farrell and Johnny Depp play the same character. Yeah. That um, is so. I never drew that connection. Yeah, uh, true. There's story. two movies like that. There's two movies where he shoots a blank into a guy's eye yep. out of a gun. <laughs> there's uh, there's two remakes of cop television series from pre yes 1980 pre 1990s. Yep. Yeah, yep. it's the list goes on um, and on. I have never seen Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and truly, like I was like, eh, when it came out, and then I found out, and but like like. Truly, this is it. I was like, I was burnt out on Redmayne when it came out, and I was burnt out on Miller, and I was burnt out on Gad when it came out. But Colin being in it, I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then, like, a few days after it came out, someone told me, he plays Grindelwald. And I was like, I think I'm going to see this movie. And then someone was like, and then in the last scene, he turns into Johnny Depp. And I was like, I don't want to see this movie. <laughs> and, and then I he turns into Mads Mickelson. Seen any wow. of those movies. No, 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 no disrespect. Okay, some disrespect. All disrespect to Johnny Depp. Yeah, um, yeah. And trust me, around the time I saw Imaginarium was pretty much the height and the immediate fall well, of my interest of Johnny Depp, which lasted about two, three years. It's the height of America's interest with Johnny Depp. Right? So true. Like, three right months after pirates? this movie, three months after this movie is Alice in Wonderland. And that's the last wow. big Johnny Depp movie. Because after Alice in Wonderland, the fall off for him is sudden. Yeah. Um, let me pull it up. What does he do? I mean, because he does the the tourist, which isn't a real movie. Oh no, um, tourist is and trash. and all the 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 drama around the Golden Globes that year like really hurts his career. Um, he gets Becca. I wonder what draws him Golden Globe movies. nominations for best actor in a comedy in the same year. For the tourist and Alice in Wonderland, hmm. uh, and it's one of the more egregious. Uh, the Golden Globes are are bought off because yeah, then it's the Pirates of the Caribbean movie no one likes, the Rum Diary, which isn't real, Dark Shadows, which is a disaster, Lone Ranger, which is a disaster, Transcendence, which is a disaster, Tusk, which may be oh the my. worst performance ever given on screen, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Um, Mordecai, which is a disaster. Black Maps was a disaster, and then oh, Black Maps, and then that brings us up to Fantastic Beasts, and him being the like big reveal in that movie is what kills it's that so, franchise. 
It's so strange because I go from avid Johnny Depp fan, can do no wrong. All of his movies are good and interesting, and he's always bringing something strange to the movie. To he is ruining every movie he's in. Like, and you're not alone in feeling that way. Yeah, no, it's crazy because Pirates of the the Caribbean. Like, I mean, what is it? I I can tell you what I've always thought it was. I know this movie made more money than God, but I think it's Alice in Wonderland. I think everyone walks out of Alice in Wonderland, whether they know it or not, fucking hating Johnny Depp. Um, (laughs) Because Alice in Wonderland ends with him doing that dance, which is a way to end a movie. Uh, I, as little as I want to think about Johnny Depp's personality, I I do wonder what draws him to these expressionist filmmakers like a Tim Burton or like a Terry Gilliam that he seems to be willing, at least at, at one point in his life, seem to be overwhelmingly like willing to give him to give himself away to that kind I, of aesthetic and that kind of I don't know. I don't want to do it at all but I have said this to Connor before that like it would be the most interesting podcast in the world Johnny Depp. to do to all do the Johnny Depp, Depp movies of the of the mm-hmm. 2000s um so yeah let me uh let's actually get into the meat of this movie because uh, it's been around an hour, and that's normally when we do this. Um, synopsis. 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 Oh, God, I got to fucking do this. Okay, give me like an hour. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, this is The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus from 2009, directed by Terry Gilliam, written by Terry Gilliam and Charles McKeon, McCown, um, starring Heath Ledger, Christopher Plummer, Andrew Garfield, Vern Troyer, Lily Cole, Tom Waits, uh, Gwendolyn Christie, Peter Stormare, and of course Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and and pointedly he gets the end. Colin Your Farrell. boy, yeah. Uh, which I want to loop back to that billing for a second. Okay, it's oh, it's boy. spawning off your letterbox review. I'm 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 sure. Which I read right before. No, but that movie. was the big thought I had, and I know that's kind of a grotesque thing to say, but I think you know from after jump, watching it. It's yeah. after watching it's a better, it. Yeah. yeah. Did you see my letterbox review, Connor? No. Okay. Well, I'll br- oh, I'll bring yeah. up my three. Okay. Doctor Parnassus, played by Christopher Plummer, is an immortal Himalayan monk uh, <laughs> who has fallen on hard times. Having gained immortality in the deal with the devil, played by Tom Waits, he now bums around London with the titular Imaginarium, which is a carnival theater show that invites audience members to travel to a magical realm of their imagination where they are tested with the choice of achieving a very buddhist style self-fulfillment or giving into temptation and ceding their soul to satan um his 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 team of performers along him is his daughter valentina played by lily cole uh, his assistants and his assistants, Anton, played by Andrew Garfield, and what is Vern Troyer's name? Percy, played by Vern Troyer. Um, in one of his many deals with the devil over the years, Parnassus was once tricked into offering him his daughter's soul when she turned 16, and her 16th birthday is rapidly approaching. Um, as they travel around London, they find a man, played by Heath Ledger, having been lynched underneath a bridge, but still alive. They rescue this man who passes himself off as an amnesiac, 
even though he is clearly on the run from someone. Um, They soon learn that his name is Tony and they bring him into the fold. Uh, Along the way, the devil makes another wager with Parnassus to save his daughter's soul, depending on which one of them can win five souls in the Imaginarium first. Uh, Tony decides to gussy up the show, abandoning... uh, the sort of mystical old world trappings of the Imaginarium in favor of a very contemporary self-help milieu and is able to finally start bringing customers in. They're able to quickly approach the four souls, uh, the five souls needed. However, it turns out that Tony is on the run from the Russian mob and they use the Imaginarium to dispose of mobsters as they attack him. So the tally remains tied. Mysteriously, every time Tony enters the Imaginarium, which he often does, he finds his face changed to better match the personality of whoever he is spending time with. Eventually, it is gradually revealed that Tony is a disgraced ex-philanthropist who ran a charity that was in bed with the Russian mafia. He and Valentina begin to fall in love, and he tries to pass it off as just bad investments, but is gradually revealed that no— he was running an organ organ harvesting ring disguised as a high-end orphanage charity. Eventually, he takes Valentina into the Imaginarium to save her from the devil. But his soul and hers find themselves getting corrupted and losing their madness as his guilt begins to shape the world around him. She cedes herself to Satan, but Satan, not liking this victory, decides to make a deal, one last deal with Parnassus, to trade her soul for Tony's. Uh, Parnassus then tricks Tony into allowing himself to be lynched by, like, the manifestations of his guilt, at which point the devil reveals that Valentina is free somewhere. Parnassus then spends an eternity wandering the imaginary of dreamscape before stumbling back into the real world where he discovers that Valentina and Anton have gotten married and have a child. He decides to leave her in peace and begins a life street busking with Percy uh, and still fending off the devil's continued attempts to entrap him in more games. That's about it. <laughs> Did I, I miss anything? That's notable? impressive. Yeah, this, I, um, this movie would be a lot better if it was a Cronenberg movie based off of the it. the hard points. Well, just like the subplot of uh, organ harvesting out of children it's... and the Russian mob intrigue, just like all, all of that stuff sounds better as a Cronenberg movie in my mind. There's like the big confrontation scene between Anton and Tony um when he's played by jude law because to clarify for listeners who have not seen this movie so let's just get into the big thing that happens in this movie Mm. halfway through the shooting of this movie heath ledger dies right yes famously heath ledger is no longer with us um now how it had worked out was they had shot all the exteriors in london already They were taking a break from filming and they were going to go to Canada to shoot all the fantasy sequences. All the green sound stages. Yes. Big VFX spectacle stuff. So they are kind of left with this easy fix to pick up production, which is that with the exception of some reshoots that were reworked, there are some moments where you can tell it is obviously a body double playing Tony 
Um, conveniently, he already wears a mask for much of the movie, uh, which is a, a really serendipitous aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Gilliam made the decision to then have it be that every time he enters the Imaginarium, he is played by a different actor. So in the first sequence, it's Johnny Depp. In the second sequence, it's Jude Law. And then in the lengthy climax of the film, it's Colin Farrell. Yeah. Um. So in that second scene where it's Jude Law and they're like disposing of Russian mobsters in the Imaginarium and he and Anton, Andrew Garfield, get into this big head to head, he kind of spins Garfield this bullshit of like he took bad investments from people he thought were trustworthy who are actually mobsters using his charity to launder money. All for the greater good of saving children. If that's what it was, it would be fine. And if the ultimate reveal is he doesn't actually give a shit. He's just like skimming off the top. Yeah. That's fine. Once it's an organ harvesting ring, I'm like, <laughs> this guy's too engaging for that to be the reveal. It's also just what's so go ahead. This is like a, a scandal that that to my knowledge has never existed in real life. So it's a hard thing to just throw in there uh, at the tail end of the, of this wieldy movie about um fantasy dreams yeah what's what's so funny is i've probably seen this movie the most and this is the first i've heard of an organ donating don- like i didn't know that that's part of the plot when does it's that it's like happen? a tossed off line yeah right really? it, 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 they really like breeze past it it's what it's what when <laughs> at the end of the movie when <laughs> andrew garfield's face is like CGI'd onto yeah, a child. CGI'd onto like, the body I of a like child. Yeah, and he it's runs into the effective. room and and he 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 exposes what's happening very very quickly. Yeah, I think they this kind is, of this is like one run on sentence that he yells as he runs into the room, and it's it's essentially that he exposes that Tony was selling the organs of the children to the Russian mob, and and for whatever reason something went wrong, and then that that's why the mob had killed him. You know, I, I, I shouldn't be surprised that parts of this movie are lost on me and continue yeah. to be lost on me, even on a probably a seventh to eighth rewatch at this point. I've seen this movie a lot I and mean, that think, never hit me. <laughs> I think you're kind of bored by the third act anyway. And so Very you're, much. you're kind of just taking in the visuals and you're ignoring that. It's an easy miss. I think this was the first time I had clocked it too. Um. I clocked it immediately. I'm surprised that you guys didn't notice it. Um, No, because I was like, what (laughs) did he just say? (laughs) And why has this not been a bigger part of the film up to this point? It's too ugly, though, right? And I I get that there's this like almost Wachowski-esque subtext through a lot of Terry Gilliam's films of like human beings being turned into like metaphorical fuel for the ruling class and so i get why he would do that because it's of a piece with like brazil right yeah i do wonder how much of this film had had actually been reworked and rewritten after the death of legend it claims very little i know he does but it's it's it seems like bullshit it's hard to believe that when when huge pieces of exposition seem to come out of way out of left field, yeah. like they do at that point in the movie. And it's not yeah. the only example. Um, I, I think the other problem is that just Tony as a character 
is so unmoored in this movie and a lot of a lot of critics at the time like centered in on this as like the big problem with the movie and they kind of did it like respectfully because they're like we understand why but at the core of this movie is this character who feels like he's being played by four different actors who have four different completely different takes on this guy and it's like you know, so it's the problem, but also like it feels like everything about him got rewritten halfway through the movie. And so he's drastically changing, not just in appearance, but in motivation. Well, yeah, I just I, I find it difficult to. To make any kind of judgment about what the actual purpose of the Tony character is supposed to be within the, the story that this film is trying to tell. I think they made him nicer in the edit. I think they softened edges off the character in the Heath footage, even though, again, they claim that there's no real stuff left on the cutting room floor. I think they made him nicer to be more respectful to Heath because the character that Jude and Colin specifically are playing is way scummier. Yeah. Um, Whereas Heath is doing his like Heath Ledger charming rogue shtick throughout mm-hmm. which is obviously like a a persona that tony is putting forth for these people but like i i can't square the guy who is harvesting children's organs and selling them in the black market with every the time you say it it makes me laugh jude law sells it for me that at that idea yeah. i think jude I, law has my least yeah. favorite portrayal of tony but that's Eas- because they're easily. all very yeah you, very disconnected, oh, easily though. laws the worst i think um, I'm I, I'm I not sure how him. I feel about the depth, just because I I don't really see the, what depth is doing. It's um, just fair. Yeah, fair. it's just closer to Heath Ledger. So at that yeah. time, you're like absorbing it, and then Jude Law comes out of left field. He de- well, one depth of the weird things just... about the depth, if we're just gonna jump yeah. into it, is depth that the way depth looks looks so similar to the way Ledger looks that when yes. he takes off the mask, you almost don't clock it for a second that yeah. it's not Ledger. It's you like really have to look one. at the screen. Yeah. Well, but also you do have to remember that this is like peak debt mania. Yeah, it um, is. Yeah, but it's Depp- also just a symptom of the way that Ledger is styled. Like that Ledger yes. just happens to be styled early. Again, like, weird serendipity. To a, a lot of a lot of stuff goes right for Heath Ledger to die in this movie to finish production. Do you get what I'm saying? Like it's. You couldn't not actually... necessarily the way I would word it. No, but that's but what I'm yes, saying. Obviously, saying. Yeah. obviously, you nobody wants their lead actor to pass away halfway through filming. It's the worst possible scenario that could ever occur on a shoot. But okay, wait, wait. But wait, I want to say something. You <laughs> just called him the lead actor of the film, and what I'm saying is. Is Heath Ledger actually the lead actor of this film? And what purpose does the Tony character I, try actually actually have within the story? I'm gonna quibble a point. And here. we can get back to that later. Let me just yeah. quibble a point, and I want to get back to that later because I had the same question. Yeah. I think he's objectively, undeniably the lead actor, because that is, as I'm sure you two both know, that's like an industrial idea. That's not a narrative idea, right? He's first on the yes. call sheet. Yeah, it's an economic. Is he, now, the question is, who's the protagonist of this movie? That is a muddled morass to get into. My point is that, like, it does seem like so many narrative and design decisions they're making, like, 
is planning for Heath Ledger to die. And obviously that's not the case, but they're in the best possible position for having to pick up production with it, with having lost your number one on the call sheet, right? You've styled him like another huge star of the era. You put him in a mask for half the movie. You, all you have to shoot are fantasy sequences that take place within someone's imagination. He's already not super talkative. Like you're weirdly for all that, like people talk about Terry Gilliam being cursed and they cite the death of Heath Ledger as part of that curse. It could have been so much worse from a, I don't want to be insensitive. Heath Ledger's death is like a calamitous tragedy. Obviously, I think we all agree on that. I also feel like, especially because the movie sign offs signs off by um, a film Heath Ledger and Friends, mm-hmm. um, or by by Heath Ledger and Friends. Yeah. Um, I find a lot of sentimentality behind this movie, yes. especially knowing that the you know Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and uh, Colin Farrell came forth on behalf of Heath Ledger. And it's something that distracts me through the movie, but also is rather heartwarming. And in that case, I kind of loved seeing the different actors approach the role slightly different because I think it's deriving on their relationship with Heath Ledger, considering that's probably at the forefront of their minds. Not that Tony is harvesting organs from children. Uh, Like, I, I, I I can grasp that in the movie and actually find a lot of, like, interesting notes through it. Yeah thinking about that so there is this whole friends thing uh which interestingly that was supposed to start the movie uh that little that 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 little title card uh because it doesn't say a film by terry gilliam is what she's referring to it says a film by heath ledger and friends um and gilliam said when they tested the movie because he doesn't show up to like 30 minutes in um it just primed people like people were already antsy because they knew it was the last heath ledger movie and doing that part okay The story behind this movie is that the reason it's Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and Colin Farrell is that they're all close friends of Heath Ledger's. Famously, Tom Cruise lobbied hard to be in this movie. Jeff was hoping you'd bring this up. Turned. I kind of want to do a whole Tom Cruise sidebar. Uh, Tom Cruise lobbied hard to be in this movie and got turned down because he wasn't friends with Heath Ledger. I can't I, even now. I can't even imagine. No. No. Okay. If he's Jude Law, the movie is like a half star better. Um I yeah, I agree. You I just remember. can't imagine it. I know we're yeah. all like Tom Cruise as Mr. President of Movies again right now, but you gotta mm. remember in 2008 when they're shooting this movie, Tom Cruise's career is over. Yeah. The, 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 yep, the, yep. War, the War of the Worlds press tour is such a disaster. And Mission Impossible 3 is such a bomb that there's like, I think there's a 10 year Tom Cruise fallow period that's in two parts. And this is firmly in the first part where he is trying to reinvent himself as a weird character actor. He does, he wants to do this. He does Tropic Thunder. He does Lions for Lambs. He does Rock of Ages. Right? Like, he's mm-hmm. like, wow. his takeaway is, I'm not a leading man anymore. Let me be like a freak show character actor and do these like weird stunt performances. It makes sense that he wants to be in it. He'd be better than Jude Law. Okay. This is what I was going to say. I know Heath Ledger and Johnny Depp are friends. We're friends, right? That's well established. I have done no looking into the Jude Law. Sure. 
the timeline certainly ages up. But like I've done like some research on this. I did it this morning. I've done it in the past. I can't find any references to Colin Farrell and Heath Ledger being friends, except for the idea that Colin Farrell is cast in this movie because he's friends with Heath Ledger. And given both those guys' tabloid reputation at the time, you'd think there'd be some documentation of them at a strip club together. I wonder if that is a (laughs) lie that is being told to justify the fact that they didn't want Tom Cruise to be in the movie. (laughs) It's possible. Well, here's to throw another wrench into it. Notably, Heath Ledger and Matt Damon were friends, and Matt Damon is not seen in this movie. And Matt Damon's not in this movie. Yeah, It's also three guys with similar bone structure, and four guys with similar bone structure, right? Like, is Colin coming in to do a solid? Well, it, it it would be kind of funny if, like, if Tony didn't just change face, but also change the size of his body and stature uh, with, three... with each one. Like if he turns into the rock in the first yeah. change and then he turns into Tom Cruise. And then it's the rock. In the Tom last Cruise one, he's like David. John Goodman or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should all form our cursed casting for <laughs> the Imaginarium of Dr. I Parnassus. Mean, if it is Tom Cruise, I think. There was some rumors at the time that they turned him down. I because like a, a few months ago, I went on a rabbit hole of this because I was trying to see if like was it going to be Tom Cruise specifically instead of one of them, yeah. or was did Tom Cruise just like reach out to Terry Gilliam? And the answer is just the latter, right? Like, yeah, they weren't fixated. There was a lot of speculation because this was public knowledge when this movie was resuming production. There was a lot of speculation that they were just like. Tom Cruise is a crazy Scientologist to be too distracting for the movie. And of course now it'd be like Tom Cruise is fucking Tom Cruise again. It'd and now the opposite happens. So distracting when, for the when movie. The opposite happens when there's like, uh, um, what's that Marvel movie? Uh, Multiverse of Madness comes out last year and, and every single rumor site is talking about how Tom Cruise is going to show up done. as an alternate Tony Stark because the rumors just, that Tom just Cruise because was originally in the running to those be are not rumors; those are real. Those are real. yeah, yeah. But I'm those saying are absolutely real. I'm saying it's the opposite scenario yeah. now, where that 2008 Tom Cruise would have died to have an appearance in a film like that in that role, and now he's he's too far beyond in his own sphere to even interact with that realm of of Hollywood. Which is interesting because the machination, the like Tom Cruise protective bubble thing is actually a very recent development because as late as 2017, he's still trying to like, yeah. My idea is that like, okay, if the first half of that like 10 year foul appeared is him trying to be a character actor. Then he makes fucking ghost protocol, which is a huge hit. And then he's like, no, I'm still a movie star. But then you get like five years of him being like, but what does it mean for me to be a movie star where mm-hmm. he's doing weird Jack Reacher, Edger tomorrow, oblivion, American made the fucking mummy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's only post fallout where he's like, I work with the same three people. I like have the massive shoots. I functionally ghost direct these movies. Like he's only made three movies in that note over the course of five years. Right. Mm-hmm. Like as late as 2017, he's still fucking swinging for the fences. Tom, come back, please. I miss you. Be in a real movie again. 
I was like, what are you saying? I'm like, he's literally back. Like, he's no, he is is on his way back right now. (laughs) Be in a real movie again. Have you seen, have you seen Dead Reckoning yet? Either of you two? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. I I was, yeah. Like, I was talking with Jeff about this. I I don't think he agreed. If you agreed, I I think his age has finally caught up to him. And I think he's, I think it probably hurts that uh, Maverick sat on, sat on shelves for yes. so long. Because yes. He, oh, you can he tell. He looks noticeably younger. Like yes. while he was doing the press for Maverick, he looked mm. noticeably older than he actually does in the film. I was I was talking to a friend of mine because I'm on, I'm constantly being like Tom Cruise work with a real director again, and I thought like why isn't Tom Cruise at Asteroid City? Why is Tom Cruise not playing the Tom Hanks role in Asteroid City? Hanks is great. I think that would have been interesting. And my friend was like, he's too young, and I'm like, he's four years younger than Tom Hanks. Yeah. Tom Hanks has accepted that he's a 65 year old man making movies at that age, and I think Tom, the plastic surgery has worn off. Like, either get more Botox or. Be in a real movie. It is well, kind of funny because uh, he should be in fucking Oppenheimer. Why is he, he not be. in Oppenheimer? He should be, but he 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 had that viral uh, interview quote that went around last week, maybe where yeah. he was saying how he wants to make Mission Impossible movies until he's I... eighty. And in my head, I was like, "Wow, that's a lot." More. And then I was like, "No, that's that's like four. Years. That's like four more Mission Impossible yeah. movies. Like we're we're running out of time for that to happen." He has I, he has an unsustainable life it's basically from fallout that you could see him age 20 years like finally you're like wait a minute tom cruise is 62 and then you see dead reckoning you're like this man's 62 or 61 he looks so old in dead reckoning and like no one likes the mission movies more than me truly it put them to bed like someone pointed out to me that his tenor on this is gonna blow your mind connor his run (laughs) as ethan hunt has now matched connery Lazenby, Moore, and Dalton. It's like the combined. same. It's the same run of time from Doctor No to License <laughs> to Kill. <laughs> and he wow. was probably he was probably not that much younger than Connery was when he started. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he could have even been I, the same age for all I know. To be honest, I mean, there's obviously this like fucking specter hanging over there. Is like. Well, what if he had played Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? But like, yeah, I don't even like that movie that much. He needs to be doing stuff like that, right? Like, he needs to be working with real directors again. Do another movie with fucking Scorsese. Tarantino would love to use him. Do another movie with Paul Anderson. Do a movie with Gerwig. Do a movie with Peel. Um, do a movie with fucking Aseas. Do a movie with Hanson Love. Do be in Barbie. He really should be in Barbie. Like, this is my thing. Do a movie with Nolan. Like, do Tom. Especially the whole idea about Tom Cruise is that he was a human Ken doll. I know. For the longest amount of time. Yeah. I've been saying since it was announced. Since we clocked that Barbie was going to have this, like, fucking insane cast of people, like, popping in and out, I've been like, he would never do it. But Tom needs to be in Barbie. It's good for the movie. It's good for him. That's because right. Tom can't even let Tom go at Thank this you. point. It's just but- a Tom Cruise show. That's why when we saw Dead Reckoning, there was obviously a lot of uh, previews that there always yeah. are. But then there's three, three. featurettes yeah. about Dead Reckoning. And yeah. I lean over to Jeff immediately when it's just like a secret look behind the scenes. I like, we're about to see the fucking movie. I don't need the <laughs> red carpet. And Tom Cruise, like, 
painstakingly trying to lift his old face to smile for the cameras anymore. I'm just, I'm tired. I just want to uh, see the movie so Jeff can shut up. <laughs> yeah, but like, Becca, I know you're not as much, I know neither of you guys are much as Tom people as I am, but like, yeah. you gotta understand that like, the Tom Cruise thing for so long was that he would fucking like, take these big swings with his it's career not, that he'll be in eyes wide shot that'll be in collateral that'll be in board on the fourth of july right like he had a career like what colin had where he would yes. find it he would find an interesting filmmaker and and but from the moment he started having clout in the industry he would reach out to said filmmaker and say what are you working on next i want to be a part of it if it fits me and, and he still that's what his story all, was up until everything macquarie says this like, year 2008 or 2007 whenever he no but really... he's still he tries to be in this, right? He does yeah. Tropic Thunder like he... When does Tropic Thunder come out? 2009? 2008. 2008. Yeah, 2008. so that's what I'm saying. Like until he yeah. hits this point, he's still doing that thing. Yeah. yeah. Um even like Rock of Ages is a huge fucking swing. Like it's a disaster. Um <laughs> like he 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 gets see what you will. He gets on Kaczynski early on. He gets on Aquari early on. Like yeah. those are like poison pills, but that is him like seeing someone that he thinks has potential and wanting to work with them same with Lyman like and also, that was uh, just oh he only works with those three guys somewhat not not so much with Lyman but with uh Kaziski and uh Macquarie okay. it's somewhat a blank slate of collaboration where he can truly become the auteur the and mold the project to to his liking Okay, we got to get off Tom Cruise because he is not in the, he's notably not in the but, imaginary but it's, but of I, Dr. Parnassus. I think it's fascinating that he wanted to be in this movie. And I actually think it is kind of an early example of like, I don't think the Tom Cruise savior of movie theater stuff is just a marketing ploy. Like, I do think that's something he actually deeply cares about. Mm-hmm. obviously it is also a marketing ploy right that he can like sell himself as this superhero in real life yeah i i hear that tom cruise wants to be in parnassus and i'm like oh that is an early example of him being like no you finished the fucking movie how can i help you finish the fucking movie and it yeah. is also a good career move for him because it makes him look better that he like surrenders himself to this Terry Gilliam movie. You know, like the the positive and negative reads of the Tom Cruise thing are there from the start. Do you Yeah, have, I like, like your final thesis. After all of that, I love your final yeah, thesis you. about that. We <laughs> had to do the Tom. Do you corner. do you have Cole like if if we're talking about like ambassadors of cinema at this time when this film is being made, do you have like three off the top of your head that would actually fit the mold? People who could fill the role? People who are signifiers to the world of like this is the filmmaking community and this is how we support each other like when tragedy happens. i mean tom's so weird because he's still got all the baggage yeah i think i think depp is actually a very good choice um because he's notably friends with heath because he's so huge at the time that it's like De- depp being in this feels like uh a god coming down from Olympus to like help a smaller <laughs> movie in a way that Law and Feral 
doesn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. Johnny Depp does the same for Hunter S. Thompson for the Rum Diary because does Hunter he? S. Thompson was a dear friend of his. Yes. And actually, I think he even took his ashes and did his final wishes. Johnny yes. Depp did. Um, but I don't know if that was around the time of the Rum Diary or if Hunter S. Thompson had been dead a long time and he, he had been heard dead about the Rum Diary for several years. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Johnny Depp does have like a short history of very choice people. Um, he's, uh, I think of River Phoenix. Um, I don't yes. know if he ever uh, took over a movie for River Phoenix like he did with Heath, but I'm pretty sure he's had a hand in some of River's like last. He years. was there when River died, right? In his, not, uh, it was mistaken. Johnny Depp's club that. Yeah, he oh, and wow, Samantha Mathis were like with River Phoenix when River Phoenix died, I believe. Wow. Yeah. So you could also contextualize his his love with Heath in that he witnessed a pretty much identical tragedy um, that is, then um, probably lured him into this movie, too. Is the Rum Diary any good at all? It has kind of like the tourist vibe where you're like, I never saw oh, the yeah. tourist. I never <laughs> saw the tourist. Called out. Okay. Well, you know, it, it's like uh, it, it was 2009, right? Tourist 2009, yeah. 2010. Yeah. So I. To, I specifically remember watching The Tourist on an in-flight movie and being like, I think my my fandom for Johnny Depp has just died. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think that's what happens for yeah. everyone. Because I was still on a Johnny Depp boat post Alice in Wonderland. I got the fucking Wii video game for that movie and loved it. And then The Tourist happened and so immediately I was just like, it's over. Yeah. I also, I, I mean, maybe some like in, indebted misogyny of myself. I was like, Angelina Jolie is tanking this movie. And then I'm like, no, it's Johnny Depp. It's totally Johnny Depp. Yeah, I've never seen it. I, I probably should. It sounds bizarre. Um, I've always just wondered shot about the in Chicago. Oh, I think. interesting. Um, I think. He's touring Chicago. <laughs> oh, He's you know what? No, I'm thinking of the James McAvoy Angelina Jolie movie. What's oh, that? Wanted. Yes, Wanted was absolutely shot. <laughs> That's right, public yeah. enemies. <laughs> uh, excellent movie. Wow, 2009 was such a he was um year for him. he was he, he's a big Chicago. Depp boy. came in to shoot Parnassus like right before setting, like a week before setting off to do Public Enemies. Yeah, it's why they were so yeah. tight. Which is like insane that Michael Mann shot Public Enemies. Like that late, if you think about it, because that's only a year before yeah. it comes out. Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, the the bad Michael Mann movie. I'm sorry to all the public enemies heads. Uh, <laughs> this is where I sign off. Depp Depp's not good in it. Uh, Bale's great in it. Tatum's incredible in it. Uh, Cotillard's in that. Uh, who's is um is Carrie Mulligan? Bale? No, I, there's another no. like girl who like pops up before she gets famous in that movie, isn't it? Is it Carrie Mulligan? I don't. Carrie I Mulligan. Look what character? No. Oh, 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 oh! Is it? Oh, it's like a. It's like uh, baby. The face? guy that Stephen Graham plays isn't it like his girlfriend. I she think opens the door. Face yes, Nelson. Carrie yeah. Mulligan. She opens yeah. a door. No, that's. She does open a door. Who does like, he that's play? exactly what I'm thinking of. Who does he play? Babyface? Uh... Babyface Nelson, yeah. Yeah, Babyface Nelson, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's wild. It's funny yeah. because Carrie, Milligan, Carrie uh, Mulligan is in Pride and Prejudice as well, yes, she which is. was before this. Yes, she is. Uh, but yeah. um, 
she's gonna blow up like a week after public enemies <laughs> yes. comes out yeah um great gatsby uh, and education no. her her oscar nomination well, uh carrie mulligan two oscar nominations for two uh bad movies um so cool, so... So cool. <laughs> you keep saying that this great is actress. like it's it's the circumstances of this film's uh, diegetic nature is creating a circumstance that's like perfect for recasting an actor who, yes. who ceases to be a part of it part way through the shoot. But my argument against that, aside from all the things that you've said that I agree with, is that the actual character that Heath Ledger is playing in this film is not receptive to the, yes. the type of like meta textual weight that this entire Concur. circumstance is placing upon its featurement within the picture itself. Yeah. And, you know, part of the problem with the recasting is that he's playing somebody that is selling children's organs to the Russian yeah. mob. And can I say, I'm another just, problem? I actually it? think it's it, it, that fact itself, the fact that he's playing a, a, an antagonist and not not a protagonist, the fact that it's not a loving portrayal of a Heath Ledger character, like completely disrupts every other uh, every other beneficial aspect of the circumstances surrounding these recastings. And, and it's it's almost it, it, almost to the point that it makes me roll my eyes when it says a film by Heath Ledger and friends at the end of the movie, yes. not, not that I don't understand the sincerity behind it, the sincerity behind like the show must go on. We must band together to, to, to finish what our friend had been a part of, but just to the point that like, this is a movie about a man that's found lynched underneath a bridge, able to breathe because he shoved a, a brass pipe down his throat to keep his air. I open. love that idea. And I hate the payoff. <laughs> but there's something very fairy tale esque about that, right? It's, well, yeah that that individual aspect, that individual I, aspect when they realize why he's not dead is is great. I agree. It doesn't show you though it, at that moment when they bring him back to life. It doesn't show you that it's a pipe. Like I I can't I couldn't understand yes. what was happening. I didn't even realize later in the film when Anton the Garfield character is playing the pipe as a flute that that was the thing that was stuck inside his throat when they pulled him out. I, of, I've just seen this enough times and I'm like, Oh yeah, the yeah. pipe that's going to, that's going to pay off at the end. And then I watched the end and I'm like, Oh yeah, the pipe payoff like really sucks. But what I'm saying is like, because of the portrayal of the character, because of that character's placement within the film, even though this, this is almost like a faux ode to Ledger's life through depiction of his on-screen personification of death in a way the 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 signifier the the iconographic depiction of death him being hanged his character at least being hanged multiple times throughout yeah. this film and 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 the eeriness of the fact that he is visually brought back to life during his Johnny, introduction Johnny um, Depp also gives the fucking Gene Smart in Babylon yeah, uh, twenty-four deaths a second monologue about how movie stars never really die. Okay, I was just uh, about to mention that because that's the first time I really clocked its significance yeah. in the sort of like background of the movie. And part of me was just like, you know, it's specifically people who died young, and I'm like, man, this is really on the nose for this whole situation. Another thing that Terry Gilliam claims was always in the script. 
Now, again, we have to be like, is he just like, I, I hate to I don't say know. it, but With it's that- so it's all so convenient that it's- but with that 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 aspect specifically cool because this is a uh because this is a movie about an immortal monk who yeah you know traded away a very important part of his personal life to be able to live forever like that does make sense to me that that would have been in the original version of the script that and aspect maybe, of like, that's such yeah. an underbaked I don't, I clearly, it is I don't think, yeah. clearly if it was in the original version of the script, I do not think it existed in that manner that it exists yes. in that scene with Johnny it's Depp. It's so beatific. But what I'm saying and my, is. My only other, my only other like point would be that they bring in an older woman who is like fantasizing about being in her prime that I think also can, I could see how Terry Gilliam would get away with like, oh, that's just a coincidence. Um. Because it's like tying to her fantasy or like her idealist nature or her idealist thought of of her heaven, I guess you could say. Yeah. What I'm it's saying in a totality, lot of different yeah. What I'm saying in totality is this movie likes to present itself as being the, like the eulogy to an old type of movie star. Yet this is the most unmovie star portrayal yes. that like you could imagine in a film like this I mean, which is that's yeah it's what makes it so difficult to digest and to be able to and um, like i said i think discern editing, any kind of judgment about it yeah i think they are editing heath's performance to make that character nicer mm-hmm. um which the then problem, doesn't work because of the way that I, colin and, I, and jude yeah. law play him at the, like, as you progress through the yeah. end of the film I don't want to be insensitive when I say this, but it is just a simple fact. These two things can exist simultaneously. It can be a legitimate tragedy that everyone takes deeply personally, and the continued production of the film is just an act of common kindness and, like, we're going to all come together and keep this moving, especially when you think about how they they gave all the money to Matilda, his daughter, right? Like, that can all be completely earnest and above the board. It is also objectively true that Heath Ledger's death is a marketing hook that was used to sell this movie. Um, And to some degree, it would never not be the case, but for as I think that's where I would like to remove Terry Gilliam from because I think he had an earnest. Terry Gilliam. That you don't need to ever give Terry Gilliam the benefit of the doubt. We don't need to get into things people have said <laughs> about Terry Gilliam. We can just say he is famously oh. unpleasant person. I retract um, my statement. Who Roger Ebert loves, said he's a very nice man. Uh, Terry Gilliam loves to give interviews about how Europe is getting too multicultural, multicultural, how woke culture is bad, and how Me Too has gone too far. Um. Terry Gilliam right, has him. also been obliquely, indirectly accused of sexual assault. Ellen Burstyn once said, don't get into an elevator room with Terry Gilliam. That is literally the extent of it. Um, her saying so his that capacity thing, to profit off of but, Heath Ledger's death is definitely there. I see. But like for all that, it's the worst thing that can happen to a shoot. Um, once the movie is finished, once you've dragged it over the finish line, I'm sorry to be insensitive, but it's true. For a small movie like this, once you've locked, the best thing that can happen to you is to be, this is the last movie 
from this incredibly acclaimed and beloved Oscar-winning dead movie star who didn't even hit, hit 30, right? Like, you don't need them. You don't need trailers at that point. People are going to go see this movie. If this movie does the business, it doesn't get the Oscar nominations. It does. It's because the death of Heath brings crowds to the theater. Yeah. And so, but it doesn't hold up. I feel like everybody comes out of that movie. is just like, this is a bad one for him to finish off. Doesn't matter because no one wants to speak ill of the dead. I'm just saying like, if people are honest with themselves, you know, years down the line, us talking about the podcast now, we can probably comfortably say like, it sucks that this is his, one of his last projects because it's not very good. And it's a weird character for him to embody on his death. Well, I think think there's a lot of interest here. There's a lot of interesting stuff. We haven't even talked about the other half of the movie. I genuinely like love all the real world London stuff in this movie. I think it's great besides the Tony stuff. I love the way they're, they're, traveling yeah. caravan the other looks... problem is that Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger is just not very good in this movie I'm happy you said it because I, I and like <laughs> here's the other thing Connor you said we have to do a Heath Ledger Mount Rushmore and we can so. do it if you want to but here would be my objection was Heath Ledger really that good of an actor or did he give two great performances near the end of his life? Because I think it's the latter because most times I see him in stuff. I'm like, I think Heath Ledger's bad in this movie. And I think enough time has passed. It's just that the, the two perform the two Oscar nominated performances are truly incredible. And he probably would have continued in that vein had he survived. Yeah, I just which are I don't, broke back in the dark night to to clarify. There, there are other performances from him that I that I truly love, and some that that I well, what hold do you very what do you dear. love? To, to push back <laughs> against me, please. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to say it outside of the Mount Rushmore because I I know there's at least one here that you don't like. <laughs> there, I, that's the thing. I don't like. I, I feel like I'm, I'll them. probably bring it up. But I hate to say it because it, it's obviously it. Was like I, I, I do think he would have given like had a great career. This had is he lived. this is what I have to say. Yeah. I've seen a lot of interviews with actors that I respect greatly for whatever frivolous reason I do um, not knowing any of them personally. Yes. And I this is a regular thing that I encounter. Years, years removed from Heath Ledger's death, where actors like Matt Damon and actors like Christian Bale and 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 other actors who have appeared in films and worked with Heath Ledger are asked who the best actor that they have worked with is, and they all they all say Heath Ledger. They have to say that. They don't have to. But you do have to. I'm saying years. I'm saying years removed from his death. You don't have to say that. The specter. Of it. Also, I know what performance you're talking about. And yes, actually, I do think he's great in that one, too. Oh, you do? Okay. But that's also at the end of his life. No, he's terrible. Yeah. Fucking terrible in A Night's Tale. He's terrible (laughs) in 10 Things I Hate About You, right? Like, I love that movie. He's bad in that movie. I I recently saw an interview with Aaron Eckhart. I think it was it wasn't a recent interview where he was describing the scene between Two-Face and and Joker in the hospital room um, and that Heath Ledger is essentially like always in character and almost always mumbling to himself that it's also a gray line 
where his character actually starts and he actually starts performing it's only sure. like aaron was like unless until he started saying lines that were on the script i had no idea he was going essentially like starting the scene and that they essentially writing off the inertia that heath ledger was bringing without like getting into like oh i'm gonna step here you're gonna do this we'll look at each other like without words constructed a scene and choreographed it and he was able to replicate it across multiple takes and not just being this wild force of nature he's like without words this man and i put a a scene together just purely off of you know rebound and i find that to be really like i don't think anybody who's just like heath ledger was a nice guy because he passed away early i think aaron eckhart digged into something that or dug into something that i think i want to hear more about with heath ledger which is to your point that everybody's semi required to say he was a good actor yeah and he was good to work with that being said like the 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 trick of the joker performance and the thing that leto and joaquin didn't get when they tried to give that exact same performance later and joaquin somehow won an oscar for it there's actually nothing chaotic about the joker performance right he's pretending to be spontaneous but there's nothing spontaneous about this guy it's just an act he's doing to throw people off when he's actually this very like calculating like crime lord yeah but that's that's all in the performance that's all in how he carries himself mm-hmm. um and you know, he's great he's fucking great in the dark night like i'm not gonna tell you he's not good in the fucking dark night oh no i mean eckhart's better i've said this on the podcasts that I think is he Eckhart... better? Is he better in the Dark Knight, or is he better in Brokeback Mountain? Heath, yeah. the 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 Brokeback Mountain performance is just so incredible because every time you watch a clip of it, like you're like, "This is the stupidest shit in the world." <laughs> and then you watch the full movie, and you're like, "This is the greatest performance anyone's ever given." Which yeah. I don't know how he did that, but like, anytime you just watch a scene from that movie out of context, it's so hammy. And then in context, it's man, I don't I don't know. I love that performance. I love all four of those central performances in that movie. Yeah. You know, I think I've I've said that before. Um and you hate you hate a night's tale and you hate ten things I hate about you. Oh I no no, I hey, hey, hey. Ten Things I Hate About You is an incredible movie. <laughs> you don't you think he's I think he's bad in Ten Things I Hate About You. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't want to talk about the Patriot because it's bad in the film. Patriot. Yeah, what about Monsters Ball? I've never seen Monsters Ball. He's probably bad in it. He's only in Monsters Ball for like ten minutes. Yeah, he, he also dies very early in that. Movie. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, um, it's hard to live on. I mean, a lot of these I haven't seen. He's I, bad in. He's really bad in the Brothers Grimm, but that movie's just a fucking train wreck. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I watched like half of the Four Feathers. I mean, do you want to say the one that you were going well, to say, I, Connor? I don't professionally. I don't know what sort of opinion I'm supposed to have about I'm not there. But I, I, I as I've said on the Kate <laughs> Blanchett, as I've said on the Kate Blanchett episode, I really, really, really love that film, and I think he is is he's 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 in the top two performances in that movie. I oh. don't know if it's the best performance of the movie. Oh, it's easily the, the best, best performance. Well, yeah. sorry, it's easily the best of the. Dylan's in that movie. It's the second best performance in the movie. Because uh, Gainsbourg gives the best performance in that movie. Uh, I, Gainsbourg. He's great, though. And I think he's <laughs> he's maybe he's 
if the movie's big thesis is that this is uh, a portrayal of the the mythology of Bob Dylan or like the ethos of his music, yeah. like how his music sounds portrayed visually and narratively on screen, I think he's the best example of bringing that to life. The have you seen? I'm not there, Becca. I haven't. So the the bit of this movie is that it's a Bob Dylan biopic where that's just about six different people who like in fairly literal ways represent phases of Bob Dylan's career. Or at least like ideas of what his music was supposed to be. But also in a literal sense, Kate Blanchett is playing like mid sixties, you know, art rock Dylan. Christian Bale is literally playing like old folky Dylan. Um, Like those scenes aren't super metaphorical. He's playing like a James Dean-esque actor who is playing the Christian Bale character in a biopic. And so to some degree, I think that conception is the most... I I think the Six Dylans thing is kind of facile because it's Todd Haynes and he is surfacey. But Ah, the idea of doing the Six (laughs) Dylans thing and then having... You're so wrong. but, but, But Connor, Connor... The the single smartest idea in Todd Haynes' entire career is that one of the Dylans is playing one of the other Dylans in a movie. Yeah. Because yes. that's where it like, no, that's the next step I always want Todd Haynes to take. Yes, um, yes. I think he's great in that movie. I mean, do you want to do the Rushmore we've been talking around? Well, it? we just named like every movie he's in. It's a very so, short filmography. Can we just come, can we like come to an agreement? Like, can we put Joker and Brokeback Mountain on. Well, Are we all in be. agreement about that? Yeah. If Can we put I'm Not There on the Mount Rushmore? Unless Becca has two strong ones she wants in there. Yeah. I, I was going to be an advocate for um, 10 Things I Hate About You and A Knight's Tale, but those are just People special love... special to me. I know they don't belong on I Rushmore. I adore 10 Things I Hate About You, to be clear, Becca. I think it's an incredible movie. I'll co-sign a Knight's Tale if you want to put that in. Fine, the, I'll in see the Knight's Tale. It it, <laughs> it should be in there, right? I don't think he's horrible. You think he's horrible in it? Like you think he detracts from the movie? A Knight's Tale? Yeah. Well, no, that movie sucks. Uh, it's not my favorite movie, but for some reason, I'm just really locked into Heath Ledger, and I yeah, would, I'm with I you, would up and... like I think he's the best part of that movie, right? <sighs> He brings it out of out Bat-me. of like a three star range to like. <laughs> okay, he takes it from two star to a three star. I'll just say yeah. that. I, I will see that. I know that people love a night's tale. Um, <laughs> there is a Mount Rushmore we have to do for real though on this episode because I've never you... seen I've never seen Ned Kelly and I probably I not he good. gives a good performance in that. So. Um, you have been kicking a can down. I have been the yeah. road here. Connor, Becca, I probably should have floated this by you um, before asking you to be on this, but I forgot. There's no Uh, obligation to participate. You don't have to participate, but you... I don't know if you've listened to this show, but normally when we do the Mount Rushmores, it's a little more structured than that, and we have guests. You get two picks fully that we're not going to disagree with. But this is the third Christopher Plummer movie we've talked about in this podcast. And it's the third. I forgot. I forgot that he's th- Aristotle. Oh, and wait, Cole, when- Cole, wait, <laughs> Cole, wait. <laughs> <laughs> he was waiting for you. To- well, don't do it because we got to do that. We got to do the Rushmore. Oh, yeah. But- 
Becca, when we were prepping to do our Alexander episode, Connor was like, Christopher Plummer's filmography is too intimidating. Can we wait until next time to do it? And then a few <laughs> weeks later, when we're prepping for the new world, Connor's like, I'm still scared. Can we wait to do it? But this is the last Christopher Plummer movie we're going to talk about. And I want to do the Christopher Plummer Mount Rushmore, Becca, if you're interested in participating. Man, if this is a longstanding thing, though, I don't want to get shoehorned into half of the Rushmore. But I want to give you no, half I know. of it. That's, 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 the, way, that's the way it works. It. Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, do you have strong feelings about Plummer? Yes, that's and I only... love him in this movie. I really do. But okay. it's not my it's not my favorite of his. That's fine. We, we'll, we'll talk about Ooh. him in this movie. I want to get to that performance, too, because I think it ties to what we're mm-hmm. saying about the Heath character. That's the yeah. tension. But how this works, then, is we're building Mount Rushmore, picking, like, the four best performances. Not movies, performances. You get first and last. And unless they're really egregious, we're not vetoing them. Okay. We have, we have a break glass in case of emergency veto. <laughs> but so... If you need to think about this, I I may only have one because I okay I it may only be beginners, which is a shoehorn because of his Oscar, but I think it's a well deserved one. Otherwise, yeah. frankly, it's I've only really seen Knives Out. Um, well, that's fine. We can we Imaginarium can put... and Sound of Music. To be very honest, I mean. Well, is your is your first pick beginner? All of them are great. Uh, my I think my first pick, if we're just going off of ones I've seen, would be Imaginarium. I think one of the okay. Other ones. Oh, oh, she said it. I didn't. It's see Imaginarium. That it's, it's it's. I don't. I don't want it to be literally written in stone, but it's written in stone. No, I um, think he's great in this movie, and I think let's um, let's table it. Normally, yeah. I'd be like talk about it, but let's table it. Let's come back. I think that's really exciting. Um. Wait, I thought, then. wait, I thought you just said beginners. I, I think was, she, no, she said Imaginarium. No, 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 no. She said Imaginarium. But I thought she was saying, I thought Becca, I thought you were was... saying that you were, that beginners was going to be the one. Yeah. Said, I, yeah. I flipped last moment because That's I've fine. only seen beginners once and I felt like it was a shoehorn because of his Oscar. And I have more of an attachment to this movie. So I was deriving off of That's, my yeah, relationship um... to the movies. Which is that what you ask for these route rush? I'm I'm being cornered. The performances. <laughs> I don't know. The perform. That's fine. It's it, but this is why I like to give it to the guests because it's your picks, right? Like that's what makes it fun is that it's collective. Imagine yeah, all of these are wacky. All of these. All of them are wacky. wacky. <laughs> yeah. This is mine because you went first last time, Connor. Yeah. Um. Part of the reason why. I've been like chomping at the bit to do this is because for me, it's a fucking, there's one bullet in the chamber and it's undeniable. And I've known what this was going to be from the beginning. I wonder if you're going to Miami vice me with this pick. No, the way I know I'm what, Miami vice. I you. know. Well, here's the thing. I yeah. know what you're picking. And if, oh. if Becca wasn't on this and we had two picks, that would probably be my second what you're picking. Okay. Um, my pick for the Christopher Plummer Mount Rushmore is the silent partner. Oh, have either of you seen The Silent Partner? I have. Um, Can you give a little recap of? Yeah. Uh, so of the Silent. Part- I feel like not a lot of other people have seen. I, I yeah, feel I like haven't. it's getting more and more discovered. Um, the Silent Partner is a 1978 Canadian film uh, directed by Daryl Duke, who is mostly a Canadian TV movie director and like TV show director. Um, 
it's it's one of the great like bummer Christmas movies. Um, but it's Elliot Gould plays this like mild mannered bank teller who realizes that the bank he works at is being cased to be robbed, and so manages to like sneak a bunch of money out when the robbery actually happens, and like basically give the robber some money. And then tell his bosses that a much greater sum of money was stolen that he then walks out of the building with. Hence, he is the silent partner in the robbery. The problem is, is that the amount of money that he says gets stolen is put in the papers. And the guy who actually robbed the place, who is played by Plummer, then realizes what happened. Um, And then the movie is this just like very unsettling cat and mouse between Gould as this like very mild-mannered guy who decided to commit a crime once and Plummer giving this like truly terrifying like shattered glass psychopath performance as this guy who's going to fucking stop at nothing to destroy this man's life and it is just a fucking ham sandwich scary <laughs> as hell honestly I think Ledger pulls from it in The Dark Knight at times because this guy's so like garrulous and like playful with how he's tormenting Gould throughout. Um, it's just for all that Plummer has this like air of dignity about him as an actor. I think that's what we think of from this guy and almost levity to him. I mean, Connor, you've seen this movie. You can back it. He's so fucking scary in this movie. Yeah. And it's, it's a, uh, he had this moment in his career where he, he could have, ended up being like a like another Christopher like Christopher Lee he could have ended up being a, a a stalwart within horror movies throughout his his elder years instead of making this this pretty drastic turn from from the more genre convention stuff that he was in in his in younger age to this like very heavy drama that that he got all these academy award nominations in in his his 70s and 80s yeah um He's in a remake of the Spiral Staircase, like right before he's in this, if I if I remember correctly. Oh, with Jackie um, Bissett. Yeah, mm, that probably is um, not very good. Did we bring? Did we? Did we talk about the original Spiral Staircase? We, at one we point? did. We yeah. we brought up Siad Mac for some reason yes, recently, and yes, I was like, "Bro, yeah. have you fucking seen the Spiral Staircase?" <laughs> uh, um, Becca, if you've never seen the Spiral Staircase, um, it's like a straight down the middle, like. British film noir from the 40s mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. all the murder sequences feel like directly ported in from like a sleazy Italian movie from the 70s. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so okay. ahead of its time. It's yeah. it's crazy. Why did we bring that up? Uh, I think you mentioned Siad Mac. New York, for, New, York yes. crime, New York crime movies. And yeah. I was like Siad Mac, Siad Mac. The Killers yeah. is so good. Spiral Series is so good. Um, but you understand what I mean? It's like he yeah. he had he has a certain he has a certain uh, geometry to his face, the structure of his face, and he has a certain way of speaking that lead that 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 gives well to these kinds of horror films, especially like psychopathic yes. slasher whatever you want to call it a kind of but he never deductive really... antagonist but then he never he never followed through it's because he's fucking captain von trapp yeah <laughs> like like and that's such a fucking like set the tone for his whole career but that's what i'm saying is it's so exciting to see him like fully break from what we think of as plumber and just i mean 
And I think because it's he's so what skilled I and because have to he's so imagine trained, Hopkins and Sansa Lambs must have been like. Because he's uh, Hopkins too, because both of them yeah. are so skilled and because both of them are so trained and because they've worked just so, so, so much, like never really had periods where they, they weren't working in, in some way or another uh, to be able to watch them push to that level where they're, they're leaving the, where they're leaving the tethers of realism behind and they're, and they're able to push it into the hammiest of ham territory. It, it, it's not annoying in the way that like other actors tend to be when they're attempting to do something like that. It's just yeah. engaging and it's just but, fun to watch. But it is also like yeah. the biggest performance anyone's ever given. Yeah. Which it's is like the best you can say about an actor I think, I, is that they can give a performance that big and that you could buy in totally to what they're doing. The, the, the sort of yin and yang I always think of with this performance is Lithgow in uh blowout. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. because that's, so nothing right like they're 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 parallel opposites but equally terrifying where where lithia's giving you nothing in blowout and that's what's so scary and plumber's giving you fucking everything and a half in the silent partner and that's why yeah. he's so scary all right connor i know what it is if you want to just yeah, say I mean, it for your pick we i've already brought him up once in this episode but it's michael mann's the insider where uh who's he playing that plays movie? mike wallace uh that's mr wallace minutes. to you that's mr wallace um man you get to hear christopher Plummer do michael mann dialogue in a michael mann movie it doesn't really get better than that it's so fun like i said argument if i had a second pick it's it's the easy i think runner up i just you know i always want to go for my boys by like weird movies (laughs) um he has that great scene where he yells at the guy that's just incredible he does Michael Mann. It's no, fucking he yells insane. At, he yells at um, what's the actress's name? The 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 one. It's Gina Gershon, right? Yeah, it's Gina Gershon. Yeah, who plays yeah. the lawyer, the the CBS lawyer? And he also he also has that moment where they're they're interviewing, I think, a Sikh at the beginning of the film. Um, so, who or yeah, it's, man, it's, I haven't it's, seen this movie in a like while. It's like a Bin Laden analog. Yeah, and, who they're interviewing, and he's essentially like. <laughs> I'm Mike Wallace. This is how we do things here. Like, if you're gonna have a problem with it, then walk off the walk off screen. So, I gotta ask you, Connor. Yeah. Michael Caine in the Cider House Rules. Mm. Tom Cruise in Magnolia. Michael oh. Clark Duncan in The Green Mile. Jude Law in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. Who were you kicking out of the 1999? best supporting actor field to give Christopher Plummer his fucking rightful Oscar nomination for that probably, movie. Probably uh, yeah, best Kane? picture nominee. What? I think it's probably Kane. It's and fucking it's a, Kane, the it's winner. Pretty easy, what are we doing? Pretty easy choice. Yeah. That might actually be the best nomination class of any acting category in Oscar history. If you kick out Michael Caine and put in Christopher <laughs> Plummer, which is fucking insane. And it's more insane that Michael Caine wins for that terrible performance. It's also kind of the film that inaugurates elderly Christopher Plummer. Yes, it's a big comeback role. We know him to Another be, yeah. reason why he should have gotten the fucking Oscar nomination <laughs> for it. How many does he have? I got to pull this up. How many nominations? Yeah, is it just uh... the three? I have it written. I'm pretty sure I, I got it. Down. I got it. One second. Yeah. I mean, do you want me to tell you? 
Oh, tell me, you have it up? Yeah. Is it, I, is it I, just, I'm pretty is sure it I wrote just it down. The Last the, Station uh, Beginners and all just the Money the Last in the Station world. Beginners and All the Money in the World. That's insane. And you know what's insane is that <laughs> the, the Last Station is a real, like, uh, we've never fucking given him an Oscar nomination. <laughs> Let's he, just fucking yeah. do it for a movie that no one sees. And then he's got Beginners, like, right around the corner. Uh. Becca, it's your pick. Have uh, you had time to percolate? Yeah, I'll just Let's give it to four. beginners. Yeah. We love a charming old man, don't we? And I, he does a charming, well. but I, I like that he's he's a charming, but he's not all-knowing. Like, we tend... Like, filmmakers tend to have the the wise, older characters come to this, this, uh, this point of... Um, all knowingness later in their lives that they can like gift down to the younger characters of the films. And Plummer is still a Plummer's character in that movie is still a guy who's trying to figure himself out, even into death. He's yeah. trying to figure out who he is and what it's he values well-written character. and what he wants his life to be. And I like that. He still has that. He, he still has that youth within him, even, even as his life is coming to an end, which is something that, Filmmakers tend not to give elderly characters in movies. Yeah, it's it's crazy how half that movie is about Marina in July. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that half is really boring. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I mean the the thing the, the thing that you have to say about the film Beginners is that there's nothing to that movie but that performance, right? But the like plumber they, performance, the plumber performance. Yeah. Mills has no ideas. He's just got this fucking fireworks factory. That I'm he surprised we didn't bring it up in the McGregor because he's uh, bad in it. I don't think he's bad. I think he's really good in that movie. Mike I Mills. Think, I don't think filmmaker. McGregor has chemistry with Melanie Laurent, which is no. Yeah. No. It, yeah, I agree. But I do think McGregor is giving a good performance and a very. Uh, I think. I think Plummer's extraordinary. Well, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 undeniable. Um, um, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good Mount Rushmore. I'm surprised we didn't do Von Trapp. That's my that's only, what I was like, gonna say. That's a little shocking, but I hey, thought we Becca didn't... was gonna go Beginners number one, and then no, but Parnassus. Yeah, but you can't. I, you can't so, okay, here is the one you can't expect me to put Von Trapp over Mike Wallace. I know. Okay, uh, here's here's the one big thing we have to get out of the way. With the Parnassus performance, though, it is a conceptual yellow face performance. <laughs> he is yes, playing is. a Tibetan with a Greek name. <laughs> yeah. We do have to acknowledge this, which do is they just say a... he's from the Himalayas. Do yes. they say that in the movie? Yes, and all the 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 outfitting okay. and the flashback is all very Tibetan. I know that. Yeah, but... yeah. he's playing, and I say conceptual yellow face. But I do think that he he wears very heavy mascara in the movie, and I think that's Gilliam's way of trying to make his mm-hmm. eyes more horizontal without fully doing a yellow face makeup on Plummer, right? I think it's it's like an Asian coating, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not Plummer's fault, because the character has a fucking Greek name, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. That's it's kind of giving Ra's al Ghul in, in yes. Batman Begins, where you're just like, I is this like a displaced American <laughs> or like a yeah, displaced Englishman? I, I mean, we also um, so much so that I haven't even. Scene. 
It does. It does have a black face. <laughs> it does. And it really leans into it. It's, it it's really a leans into it. You were about to say uh, something, I cut you off. Oh, yeah. I was just, uh, um, I don't think I've ever thought of it as a yellow face because it gives me that Liam Neeson and Batman yes. Begins where I'm just like, don't even think that they're trying to pass him off. as a But man. I think. You think they the, are? The, 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 the complication, because what I was actually thinking of was Tilda Swinton in Doctor Strange. But Tilda Swinton in Doctor Strange is explicitly stated to be white, right? Like, there's that bit where Chiwetel Ejiofer says, like, Benedict Cumberbatch like, is like, what, what's the deal with the ancient one? And Chiwetel Ejiofer says, she's in her 60s and she's Celtic. And that's all we know, right? So, like, Doctor Strange, it's clearly supposed to be, this is another Western expat who came here and trained. Like mm-hmm. Cumberbatches. The confusing thing about Plumber is that he's and, and with Neeson, with Neeson and Batman begins, you're like, what's going on with this guy? He's a man of mystery. The race bending is part of his like man of mystery aspect. Sure. All the other Himalayan lamas in that scene are also played by white actors. Yeah. I think that's Gilliam knowing he can't get away with it more than it's Gilliam supposed to be like, this guy's a, a man of mystery. Yeah. Well, it is whitewashing. It is, but I yeah, think the yeah. fact that they're all white is meant to be Gilliam being like, well, this justifies it rather than a Nolan-esque wrinkle, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, the it, Russell cool thing is like he's a mercenary that just ends up in that part of the world. Exactly. It, like yeah. the well, the thing with the thing with Russell Ghoul is like implicit because we know of the character from the comics, even if it's only hinted at in the movie that he's thousands of years old. The, yeah, but I think like you, the, but, way but you, hinted, said, the way the way the way that it's relayed in the movie is that the name is a title, and exactly. Not the actual that's, name. That's of the, the point character. I'm saying is that like. Yeah. At some point, this dude made his way to the Middle East and started calling himself that. Like, that's the implication of that character. He has a French name originally, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Another Ducard. um, Another implication. Perhaps a a poor poor example, but it was... I also watched both of these movies in quick succession. I was just like, wow, Tibet is being heavily featured. No, no, no. It's it's not a poor example because it it is the same type of thing coming because you're... Neeson isn't isn't necessarily one he's a lot younger but he's not necessarily in that same field as Plummer in terms of like you're seeing the Shakespeareanness, the 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 stage worthiness of the actor on screen and that gives him some kind of levity that like a more mundane actor doesn't have Neeson's not the same despite Neeson being commanding for his own particular reasons that that benefit him as an individual but there. There is something to there is something to the whitewashing of transcendentalism, I guess is what I'm yes. trying to say. Is that like it's trying to say that like, no, these are the these are the eternal beings. They look just like Christopher. They look and sound like Christopher Plummer, And they're white. Which yeah. is an outrageous thing to 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 say. I mean, interestingly, I, I I'm always struck by this when I watch it and I I don't know what it means. Notably one of the other llamas is also played by Christopher Plummer. Oh, really? In that, in that, in that scene, because because for I don't think I noticed movie, that. Yeah, there there is a there is a flashback scene where 
we see a younger Parnassus some like thousands of years ago in this like Tibetan monastery where all these men are like chanting this story and the devil comes and he's like, what happens if that you stop ch- telling the story and plumbers like the world ends. So the devil takes away the mouths of all the monks to stop the story and plumbers like someone's always telling a story, a very nice Gilliam touch. But when you see that montage of, of Tom Waits, like taking away all their mouths, mm-hmm. one of them is also plumber. Like he's he's in the oh. mix there for some reason, and I think mm-hmm. so is Troyer. Yeah, Troyer yes. is there, which which uh, makes the, the whole Percy thing very confusing. But I think also. Percy yes. is a different yeah. person because Percy is yeah. Italian. He 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 says his whole name later. Uh, Percy strikes me as like an Italian Renaissance guy who gets caught up in Parnassus's whole immortality. Um, we also have to say with the whitewashing thing. I know this movie was made in 2009, but we got to remember the, the 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 full force like stop casting white people as Asian characters thing is in like 2015. Mm-hmm. Like we're 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 people Hollywood is doing that shit. Way and I later. may cover it on the podcast. Even <laughs> even if they're not doing actual yellow face makeup, like it is not until Emma Stone in the film Aloha that we're like that like the cult it feels culturally unacceptable i think that's the wake up point but there's a bigger example that happens well ghost in the shell but that's my point is that ghost in the shell people are which is actually insane because nope i am not defending ghost in the shell because it's a terrible movie but i know Um, what you're gonna say have you seen ghost in the shell becca i haven't i'm about to spoil ghost in the shell the movie the ghost in the shell movie does present a diegetic reason why the yes. external physiology of the character is white that and played character by is Johansson. meant to be yeah. read as a white woman in Japan. And if I can just say this, listeners, if you don't want Ghost in the Shell spoiled for you, skip ahead 30 seconds. She is an Asian woman's brain in a white robot. Fascinating. Yeah. Like, like that's what that so that movie thinks it's doing something smart. Um, it's not that movie sucks ass, but I think, yeah, you're right. Really like Aloha's the breaking point. And then when ghost in the shell comes out, it just is fucking tarred and feathered. Yeah. And the, uh, the doctor strange thing also the doc will, but the doctor strange thing is after Aloha, right? Like, like, and at least there, they have the half good sense to be like, no, she's a white woman. It's, I mean, that's just a disaster. Regardless, he is very good in this movie. I don't think the movie knows what to do with that performance. With Plumber. Plumber, with Plumber. He should be the main character of the movie. He should be the main yeah. character of the movie. That That's why the ending is so good. Yeah. Is that he yeah. finally steps up to it and you're like, but he's sleeping. He's literally asleep for most of the movie. He's literally asleep. He's, he's drunk <laughs> for most of the movie. Um, he's not the narrative vehicle of what you're watching no. even though he is the only character that has a character arc mm-hmm. in the film is that fair enough to say uh kind yeah, of even his, yeah yeah i don't know his daughter i was fascinated one. by his his daughter was a very fascinating character to me because she was like you know like parnassus despite being like thousands of years old 
she's very young. I, I don't know. I, I just, I find like what someone raised by Dr. Parnassus would be like, I find that to be fascinating, but they, they really throw her to the wayside and eventually make her a sort of a, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, an object of sexual desire for Tony. Yeah. Is essentially like what she becomes at, at mm-hmm. one Well, point. she's just, she's yeah. just this like, I mean, she's literally introduced to this bargaining chip between Parnassus and the devil, and she never becomes more than that. Even though I feel like it is a constant refrain of this dang podcast where I'm like, ex tertiary female love interest is a terribly written character, but I think the actress is giving a really interesting performance. <laughs> I really like Willie. I really like Willie Cole in this movie. I yeah. think she's having a lot of fun. I love the, the bit, all the, the flirt flirting with Andrew Garfield, especially in the first 30 minutes um, where she's like letting her guard down and trying to act more adult. Um, I like Willie Cole. She's what she's, She's like 21 or 22. She's like 21 when they shoot this movie. Um, she's very young. She's been in a couple movies so far. Um, she's mostly a supermodel. Uh, but I said before we started recording that like she strikes me as a very of the moment actress. Um, and it's because she makes like eight movies in a three-year window and then basically stops working. Because yeah. she's in she's in the same Trinians movie, she's in this, she's in a bit of Doctor Who, she's in Snow White and the Huntsman, she's in the Zero Theorem, um, and she's in Mary Heron's The Moth Diaries. And then the most notable thing she's done since then is that she has a cameo in The Last Jedi. She's in The Last Jedi? She is in The Last Jedi. Oh, what she's is, she's in the Vegas the or the, the casino. She's Justin Thoreau's girlfriend. Oh. When they go to the fucking... Uh, casino planet and they're trying to find Justin Thoreau and Ryan Johnson does the fucking wing shot through the casino and it it pulls into Thoreau and Lily Cole at the yeah. at the craps table. That's right. That's right. But that's that's what I'm saying is I'm just like and I feel like I don't really have the language for it but there's something about the waifishness of her body and those like huge fucking eyes that strikes me as very like of fashion culture of that moment so that that it also coincides with this weird film run she has i like lily cole represents like the first year of the obama administration for me in a weird way there's also though a timelessness to her which i think fits the like anachronistic vibe of this film yeah because it feels for me i thought it was a period piece like going into the movie, wanting a Johnny yes. Depp flick. I watch <laughs> out with so Ledger, much more. Until Heath Ledger is in the supermarket getting moms to come out in a. No, because the, the movie yeah, opens well, the... with people drunkenly stumbling out of the yeah. club. And then you're like, which I I, I yeah. think that's an intentional pushbowl because the fucking thing is called the fucking imaginary of Dr. Parnassus. And then it, it hits you with this very contemporary London. I think the contrast yeah. between these people who are unstuck in time and um, the the contemporary world around them is one of the stronger aspects of the movie. And I think also that whenever they flash back to history, Tom Waits is still dressed in a suit. So he starts out anachronistic and gradually like snaps to, to, to fitting in to just feeling ordinary. I was going to say like that somehow that somehow gifts the Himalayan stuff with like 
not a pass, but like it makes it a little more digestible, easily digestible because of yeah. the fact that the devil too is like, why would this ancient force of mischief look like this? You know, it's it's a nice subtle yeah. read though that like society's going down the drain if. The, 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 we we've gotten if, to the place where they the become devil... more like the devil. Exactly, yeah. I think yeah. that's what he's doing. If the devil it's... can fit in, then yeah. like what what yeah. what hope do we have? It, it's if also that's the normal the fucking yeah. layup of the century to put Tom Waits in a bowler hat and a suit and be like you're <laughs> Satan and have him like, smoking a cigarette. The it's whole the time. easiest fucking casting of all time. Yeah, he's it's, good. In he's this... fantastic in this movie. He's, he's yeah. good in this movie. He's he's all he's, right, Cole. He's I don't know. I find better. him to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know. He's fun. That's what it is. It's just that I'm like, I just know Tom Waits can like give a more interesting performance than this. And I watched this, especially this viewing. I was like, yeah, Waits, you're kind of you're kind of walking, sleepwalking through this thing because you know that's what's asked of you. Hmm. It's it's he's a, he's he's always a delight when he shows up. How about that? Yeah, yeah. I tell but you, that's because he's thir- fucking thirteen. Yeah, thirteen-year-old me had no idea what to do with this movie. That's for sure. <laughs> Especially because I'm walking in. I've said it a thousand times. Now, I walk in because I want to see Johnny Depp, and this is coming off of my high of Sherlock Holmes. Like I loved that movie. In fact, it kind of oh fed my, my love for cinema truly. And Did so I've talk. got Jude Law in the back of my brain. Back yeah, my I brain. just put oh. that together. Yeah. Truly. <laughs> So 2009 was like a pivotal year. And I, I knew of Heath Ledger because of The Dark Knight. And I loved The Dark Knight. I was a little bit more on an Inception uh, binge at the time. I guess maybe I did watch Parnassus a little bit later because I remember knowing Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight before watching well, this movie. Heath Ledger. Being aware of that. The Dark Knight has come out a year and a half before this movie comes out. Yeah. To be he's clear, he's already won the Academy he's, Award. By the time this movie has gone as wide as it goes, he's basically a year past having won the Oscar. Like, oh. this is a it is a longer tale on this movie than you think, probably because Post was probably lengthy and arduous and a nightmare. <laughs> Vulture yeah. releases an art. I think it, no, it's Slate. Slate releases an article in the run up to this film coming out before it was public knowledge that the Tony character in this film was like a horrible person <laughs> and not not like not like a protagonist who is gifted some profound understanding of life through his experience with Dr. Parnassus, which I think is what most of the media had thought this movie was going to be before it came out. There's an article that Slate puts out that says like, will the imaginary of Dr. Parnassus give Heath Ledger his second posthumous Academy Award? We that's were a, fucking that's a legitimate so thing that people are anticipating hot. before the movie comes out. Yeah. Um, that's so wild. Incidentally, I should clarify because it's going to be a bit of a weird point. Um, this is actually kind of another um, phone booth situation for us, Connor, where we're kind of doing this movie out of order. Yeah. Because the, the order that we are tackling these movies is based on worldwide premiere date and this movie does premiere at the con film festival which is of course in may so seven months before it comes out um colin has a weirdly stacked uh 2009 so this movie actually gets its release after the next three episodes that we haven't recorded yet so um right after crazy heart functionally which is a 
pretty big deal for him. And it ties out well to that, where I hadn't even made the fucking Sherlock Holmes connection. But you're right. Like, Jude Law's back, baby. We've talked about how bad Jude Law's career went, but this is right at the height of the Jude Law comeback. Yeah. Should we do the law? Should we do the law, Rushmore? Is there a law, Rushmore? Is that... I think there's a law Rushmore, yeah. but do we okay. want to do a third one or we want to talk about Colin? Farrell? We have like three more we have to do. I feel like we Today? have to do Garfield. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can we can we rapid fire them? I have one. I have one thing I want to say just from um that I forgot to bring up is that I like I knew there was the story of of Heath Ledger's last film in which he died partway through the the making so that multiple actors were cast to play the same character throughout the film and for some reason when i was like 14 i i i got it stuck in my head that i'm not there was the was that (laughs) movie and they were and that it was like they were all cast to play different versions of bob dylan for the same reasons that this that this movie happened you know, Connor, I know it's been like a running theme through this whole podcast that like I'm just enough older than you for it to radically make a difference with every movie we're talking about. Yeah. But like I did fucking see this thing in the theater. And it was partially because holy shit, the heath of it all, but it was also like, oh my god, there's a new Terry Gilliam movie after the fucking Brothers Grimm stunk up the box office. Another <laughs> okay. movie I saw in the theater. Cause I you know that reputation that Tim Burton has as being like everyone's first auteur? Yes, yes. That like he's the guy who teaches you what auteurism means that, because like, he you, makes you, kids' movies? You don't understand that a filmmaker can have their own personal fingerprint until you see uh, Tim Burton. I, I'm not going to say Tim Burton was not that for me because he was, but Terry Gilliam was also that for me. Because yeah. I grew up in a 12 Monkeys and Monty Python household. So, like, I was watching a lot of these movies as a kid, which was probably way too young to be watching them. Yeah, but like, clearly, they they are the two predominant contemporary filmmakers who are still working in that German expressionist mode. That yes, have a lot of popularity. So I was like Gaga for this movie when it came out, and I feel like every time I've watched it, the further I get from it, the more. And maybe it's just that I'm waning on Gilliam's bullshit. But as I get older, which might be, I haven't watched Brazil in 12 Monkeys in fucking a decade. So, um, all right, probably it, baby. Tim Burton let's... is still pretty tired as well, you know. Oh, his last movie was one of his better movies. We will talk about it on this podcast. <laughs> Everyone fucking forgets about let's... fucking Dumbo. Let's rapid fire this shit. <laughs> Oh my god! Just like uh, we, we haven't did with talked Wilkinson. about Colin. Farrell Just like yet. we did with Wilkinson, we got it. We got to get through it, or else we'll never have the opportunity to do it again. Jude Law. Yeah. Okay, Becca. Do you Law want to and do then Law and then Garfield? Do you want to play for either Law or Garfield for the Mount Rushmores? I would be better off with Law than Garfield. Okay, take your pick. Sherlock Holmes. Maybe. Sherlock Holmes won. So much fun. The mm-hmm. huge comeback, iconic. Um, I'm Connor. Up. Yeah, uh, uh, Mr. Ripley. Correct. Yeah. Fuck. Okay, give me a second here. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I said my thing about that once, but it's, it's in the twenty fifth hours pocket where you're like, is this everyone's best performance? Uh, uh, is Mr. Ripley? Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. yeah he's great. Oh, Oscar I can, I can pick. Do, you, do you want? No, it? I no, pick it's yours. One. You took it. Fuck! I just realized there was another one that I would put um, on there. I'm torn. 
I'm torn. I gave away. Oh my god. I'm, I'm an idiot. torn. The holiday is a good one. He is the best performance in the holiday. Um, okay. <laughs> I got two movies, two performances that I think are of equal quality. One of these is one of the best movies like, I've ever seen in my life. One of these is one of the worst movies I think I've ever seen in my life. Oh, boy. But <laughs> I have to slightly think that he's actually slightly better in the movie that's awful. Um, I'm going my I'm going I Heart Huckabees. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I think that's like a fucking cursed object, insane. <laughs> nightmare of a performance that, oh, like... i should have i should have picked something else. <laughs> do you want to veto it this is the no because this is the rapid fire problem I like think, if if I if if we gave dreadful, becca a moment think... if we gave becca a moment to talk about her pick i would have picked i i realized now that i would have jumped into something else no. to give you mr ripley <laughs> I, I, I think that yeah. movie's terrible but i think he and naomi watts kind of lock into a weird comedic rhythm and i think he's so funny in that becca fourth pick Fourth pick. Yeah. Um do the right ooh. thing. Do the right thing. Please do the right thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna cry. I was like, is movie. he in do the right thing? Okay. No, but no, like I'm um... telling you to do the right thing. Oh I, I'm also shit. regretting my pick. <laughs> uh Road to Perdition. That's where you're going with? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's quite good at Road to Perdition. He is, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Can been we, a long time. It feels like a fake answer because I've barely seen that movie. But is that the best Mendes film? It's the good Mendes mm. film. <laughs> it's not just the best Mendes film. It's the only one that doesn't suck ass. That movie's great. Um, are we both regretting not putting a certain Steven Spielberg movie on here? Hey, I no, but I that well, kind of. I guess yeah. so. Yeah. Well, I mean, not not because no, I, I don't Fuck regret putting Mister. I don't regret putting Mister yeah. Ripley on there, but I. Other than Huckabee's, I would have put AI, and I also would have put Contagion on there. Oh, I probably would have. I kind of hate the Contagion performance. I probably would have put Vox Lux on there too. That was the other one I was yeah. thinking about as like a third place because I think he's really funny. That okay. Um, do you want to do Andrew Garfield, Becca, or do you want us to do Andrew Garfield? You guys got him. I okay. I haven't. No. We're gonna go uh, fast through here. That's great. I went first last time, so you go yep. first this time. Number one. Easy slam dunk his best performance under the silver lake. Um, yes, if okay. if we're if we're talking about the problem with this movie being that like Tony is too repellent in the script for how um how Ledger plays him, like Garfield does a miracle of I don't know if you've seen it, Becca, of just playing the scuzziest grossest, most depraved person <laughs> while still functioning as like the hero's journey protagonist and also like makes that guy worse than he is on the page right it's such a brave performance it's such a great example of like psychosis on screen um it's a weird one it's i fucking adore that whenever anyone's like what's up with garfield he's such a weird actor he's so hammy um i'm always like but he has stuff like that in Mm -hmm. him uh one note on it before before moving on i think what I love about that movie is that every decision that character makes is a decision out of pure catharsis. And yes. then the movie goes to show you why catharsis is bad because <laughs> it, because it, it lets you feel good about it for yeah. like half of a second. And then you're immediately dealt with the weight of like, Oh, I feel gross yeah. from watching that happen. Um, um, uh, Very few actors would be that brave though, to like go as full throttle with that movie as that movie needs that performance to be yeah and he's he's there he's not just meeting it he's fucking exceeding it 
Two picks. Up... Yeah. Okay. You get two. Uh, speaking of Carrie Mulligan, uh, I think my pick's going to be um, yes. Alex Garland's Never Let Me Go. Thank you. 2011. Thank you. <laughs> Heartbreaking. And Heartbreaking. that means I get to go weird. <laughs> uh, uh, great sci-fi, like great great uh process towards depicting sci-fi i mean i know it's it's um i know it's an adaptation of a kazu ishiguro novel and um he's one of the greatest living writers of his of his time and generation um garfield i think of i i just i i always think of this moment at the end of the film when he screams and i think about that all the time that movie is like a fucking and yeah heart. literally literally <laughs> tears your heart in your chest crushes it in your hands uh, it's an alex garland movie that slipped through my fingers i've never heard of this movie i it's, would recommend it it's it's terrific it, it okay. has a first act twist which weirdly isn't in the novel the novel like lays out the the premise from the beginning uh so but i would go in blind yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 100%. him it's Kira Knightley. It's Carrie Mulligan. It's like Already a British there. boarding house weepy. Um, it's one of like the saddest movies ever made. <laughs> I want to read. I want a redemption arc for Alex Garland because Men may have been one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Men, men is good. Men is good. Men it's, is good. Ooh, all right. Maybe it's. Uh, we'll talk. <laughs> it's staggeringly pessimistic, but it yeah. it has like a charm to it that. It's still humanist in a way. You know what I mean? Can I say this, Becca? Uh, I do kind of like men for the exact same reason I like Now You See Me. Um, That's an oblique reference to an off-bite conversation we were having. Um, This is the last time I'm guesting on your podcast. (laughs) uh, Wow. What's your third pick? Uh, Scorsese Silence. Oh, fuck you. Probably. Oh. Mm. I I think one of the the best performances of that year... um, Hmm. Mark Cole, you were raised Catholic. Me. I think yes. that's a difficult oh. movie for people who were not raised Catholic yeah. to confront and deal with because of just the True when you story. are raised Catholic, just the weight of the weight of the duty to attempt to try to hear God's voice, which is what that movie is about. And mm-hmm. you know, Garfield who is able to movie? tap into Garfield is able to tap into. Um, the desperation of giving your life to giving your life away to scripture in that way that I think other actors who have played priests um, don't, don't ever accomplish. You know who loves that movie? My super devout parents, (laughs) my like extremely devout parents, like almost did fucking like, boost the numbers for the fucking like Christ core God's not dead movie with, with fucking silence Oh my because they found it so profound. I uh, silence is on my list of movies that I say, um, ain't shit until the last second. Cause the, the whole the message of the movie shot. hit me in the mo in the last moment. And I haven't yeah. approached that film since. Yeah, my, so. he's I'm not devout, but I find that movie to be profound. I, yeah. my, my problem with that movie is that, I clocked where it's going really early. And I think where it's going is very profound, but 
but I kind of, I kind of registered very early on. I didn't like literally understand what Liam Neeson was going to step into the third act and do, but I understood ideologically that that's where the movie was going to end up. And so for me, I was like, can we get there? Please, Martin, I, 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 I've, <laughs> I've, un- I understand what you're doing. Can you get, can you do it? Please. And when I say early, I mean like 15 minutes of the movie. I was like, that's what this is. Not to like toot my own horn. I just, I'm on a similar like Catholic wavelength to Marty, I think. So I, I think I was thinking about the stuff in the movie, the way he wanted to like coax out of people. Mm-hmm. See, okay. I watched it at peak deconstruction and I was never no. Catholic. So it was a very interesting movie. It's a, I should watch it again. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, you have once again put me in a tough spot connor uh where i'm left between a great performance in one of the best movies ever made and a great performance in a movie that is a staking pile of dog shit oh man um, i think i know which one you're and you know <laughs> we've talked about this that, that part of the competitive aspect of doing this is playing ping pong with being like well maybe i could not pick the big obvious one because yeah someone else will feel guilty about not picking the big obvious one. And, you know, often I will take the bullet and just be like, let's just take the big obvious one. Uh, but I'm not doing that this week. Uh, fourth spot on Mount Rushmore is Spider-Man No Way Home. Okay. Silent. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> he did what he had to do for himself not for the movie, for himself as an actor. That is the performance he needed to give because he's a real actor. Toby is not a real actor, right? But Toby's better in the Spider-Man movies than Garfield is. Holland is also not a real actor and is not good in those movies. But Garfield is dreadful in the two Mark Webb movies. And it is a testament to the fact that he needed to be good in Spider-Man No Way Home. When no one needed him to be good in Spider-Man No Way Home, he did for his soul. And he fucking, like, grew up, walked through that portal, and gave this, like, I think really heart-wrenching and beautiful and human performance that no one else in that movie is even attempting to do something on that level. I'll agree with you. Yeah, And I that's why I'm not picking The Social that. Network. I'm sorry. Um, I forgot you have any feelings about Tick, Tick, Boom? Network. Uh, he's really bad in Tick Tick Boom. Oh, I don't think he's bad. <laughs> I think he stinks in Tick Tick I think he's Boom. good in Tick Tick Boom. Uh, right. You know what movie I think he's fucking extraordinary in, though? <laughs> if you say Hacksaw Ridge. No. A little <laughs> movie called The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah, he is. Because, like, I've said this. I he's saw also this extraordinary in... in John Crowley's Boy, as I mentioned. Which on, I've never uh, seen. The Intermission But podcast. because I had seen this movie in theaters and. Before because Andrew I Garfield also, was a thing. Exactly. That's my point. I think there were three touchstone points, which were people who saw Never Let Me Go, people who saw Parnassus, and people who watched Doctor Who. And I was the latter two of those because he's in one of the better Doctor Who episodes of that era as like a London street urchin, and he's incredible in. And if if you hit one of those three things... You are one of the few, the proud, the people who were not blown away by the social network performance because he didn't come out of nowhere, if you get what I'm saying, which I think so much is the myth of Andrew Garfield is that 
no one knew who he was and he's fucking in social network and he's kicking ass. Um, but I was like, of course he's kicking ass. I saw Dr. Parnassus. That's a dog shit role that he's in like fucking perfectly executing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's incredible in this movie. Another, you can make the case that he needs to be the protagonist of this movie. Yeah. I mean, in a, in the best version of the movie, it's probably um, uh, Lily Parnassus. Cole's character is probably. Or, yes, literally yeah. anyone but the muddled Tony to Parnassus. And then, and then in the second best version of the movie, it's probably the Garfield character. And then the third best movie, it's Parnassus himself. And yeah. then, like, in the worst case scenario, it's Tony is the. Well, if we're going to make our biggest fix to this movie, Becca, you know what I'm about to say because. I wrote it on Letterboxd, and you've alluded to this. And we've been dodging this. I've been saying, like, we need to talk about this for two and a half hours now. If I'm going to make one fix to this movie, and I know this isn't sensitive, and I'm sorry, but I think it solves so many problems, you reshoot the whole thing with Colin Farrell. If you're trying to make the best version of it. Yes. Yeah. I know you can't do that. He, but- I forget what critics said it. But I I was feeling the exact same way. That was like, man, I wish I could find the quote. Because it, it one of the critics was essentially like, it's kind of disheartening when you get to the end of the film and Colin Farrell just steals the show away from everybody else that's been a yeah. part of it. And so, you're supposed yeah. to be, by, by this point of the movie, as it's nearing its end, you're supposed to be celebrating what what you had with Heath Ledger. And then all you're, all you're left with is is because wishing that you could have seen more of Colin Farrell. Johnny Depp is in this it's movie weird. for like five yeah. minutes. Jude Law is in this movie for like eight to ten minutes. The entire third act of this movie takes place in the fantasy realm, which means Colin is shouldering the entire third act of the movie, right? Like I said earlier, he gets the Anne's credit. And you two both being people who work in production, you're aware of this, but just for listeners, top billing, first build, which is what Heath gets, is the best bill you can get. Last place after an ant is second best billing you can get, right? I've talked about how like in Bruges is not really actually this great boon for his career because he kind of just does a bunch of like whatever movies after it. He's going to sign on to this movie as in Bruges is coming out. So clearly when they're making this, these plans, he's the hottest he's ever been. And I think that's why he gets the and credit over Depp, even though Depp is the bigger star and the obvious and, but it's also that he's fucking like, okay, Depp's off the table because he's busy. They don't bring Jude Law in to save this movie, right? They yeah. bring in Colin Farrell to save this movie. And he's playing the scumbag, the like legitimately charming and seductive scumbag that Heath isn't. Well, it's it's like we said that Bruges legitimized him in a way that he hadn't been seen yeah. up until that point. Up until up until literally when when that film comes out and the critical community gets to take a look at it, he he is legitimized as a gifted actor working <laughs> in modern cinema, whereas before he was he was mostly yes. just something of tabloid fascination um it was Ebert, i think actually. we maybe Ebert slightly says, overstate that but yes 
Ebert says depth looks the most like Ledger, but it's a melancholy fact that Farrell steals the role. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's straddling the like, if we said that I, you know, I don't believe that this guy would like sink to those depths of evil. Like, well, I do when Colin's doing it. Like, I think he sells all the the complexities. Is the tornado about to hit you, Becca? You keep looking no, behind. Every time a car comes by, the whole oh. apartment shakes and it feels like somebody's oh. opening a door and I have noise oh, wow. canceling and the lights are off and I'm just staring at a dark abyss in the back. So it's just kind <laughs> yeah, of it's very me spooky out. Anyway, behind you. A little um, bit. But I, I, I believe it when it's Colin and I think it's because he as a performer has just the range that he can like step into the third act of a movie and fucking nail this character in a way that none of the other performers can. Yeah, it's very impressive on his part. Yeah, Um, especially because he 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 just just the aesthetics of his face. He he looks like the nicest of the four of them. Yeah, and yet he somehow captures like the the deepest depravity that that the four of them ever reach. The only real ding I have against that performance is that the accent is fucking insane, and that's because (laughs) he has to match the weird semi-Australian accent that Heath is doing. Right, like that's not. On for once, the bad accent is not on Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Becca, yeah, were like, you were you going to say something? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, that yeah, I I think I mean in a movie that's really wild and wacky, I think Colin Farrell actually meets its intensity yeah. in comparison to all of them. I would say largely, um, Tom Waits. I think he gets there. I think he's yeah. he's just as wacky. Um, but I think Colin Farrell, if he had done the whole movie, would have made Tony make a lot more sense, even if it was just to found, you know, create a very awful foundation for this character, like that he's a bad dude. I, I think we could have used more camp, and I'm glad that Colin delivered in the last second there. But that's too bad. no, but yeah. that's a good way of putting it because I was there's this very interesting push pull of him where he's. Every time he goes into the Imaginarium, he becomes a fantasy, right? Like that's the textual reasoning for why his face keeps changing is that he's – if the Imaginarium is shaped by someone else's imagination, then he's stepping into their imagination. But something happens when he pushes Lily Cole through the third time, and it becomes basically his dream, not hers. So he's his own – fantasy of himself which means he's both better and eviler right when he's when he's charming and sexy and funny it's Colin like turning all the fucking real world heat that we know he can have and when he's evil he's fucking just the scum like those like those like bullseye-esque performances that we know Colin can do right (laughs) it's it's a forerunner of where I think he's going to go when the beguiled comes around when we reach it um and <laughs> other move, other films guile, that, buddy. that we're going to to approach yeah. at some point um it's i brought this up when we were talking about pride and glory and i i i it was a journey for me to get there through having watched the other films that we've watched up to this point but i made this gesture that when not necessarily given a lot of a lot of articulate direction by the auteur that he's working with Colin, as somebody who is passionate about storytelling, will try to make do with what he can to the best of his ability to make a character out of the screen time that he is given. And while in a lot of the other 
films that we have watched it doesn't necessarily work cough cough alexander something like that um where the direction seems to blow by him this is one where his his own individual innate ability to create a character and to create a a character that fits the story that he thinks the film is trying to tell actually elevates what he's doing on screen um compared to what's happening around him which i think is really fitting for this film because garfield is doing something very similar and when you're working with somebody like christopher Plummer, who's the consummate professional of all consummate professionals um it seems like a match made in heaven to have those kinds of performers on screen that can at least in part counterbalance gilliam's lack of as i keep saying tether to reality I mean the, the 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 climactic showdown between the two of them like on the page is dog shit. Yeah. Um but I think both actors sell it and you kind of like don't care that as an act of like trickery it's very disinteresting because yeah. uh they're just giving it their all and you're like you're you're so in with Colin and you're finally getting to see Plummer like really come to life and i think because he's not drunk or asleep for like one part of the movie and he's great at the earning of sleep but i think he like earns the status as like one of his great performances just in these last like 10 minutes where because he can just flex every muscle he has Mm -hmm. um and he carries the movie to the end too and carry the movie to the end yeah Mm -hmm. so unless there's anything else to say uh there's a couple things that i can't stop thinking about yeah hit me um well, I remember like at the time when Inception came out, there was a lot of criticism uh, thrown at Nolan's direction of that film. Just the idea of like you're entering a dreamscape dreamscape with modern visual effects technology. You can do whatever you want and you're <laughs> doing something that that's very ordinary. And then I uh, watched this movie and I'm like, I w- I just so much would rather have the the more practical nature of what's going on in inception than than what's happening here and it's been making me think a lot about especially coming off our miami vice discussion not too long ago and and clearly man michael mann uses digital filmmaking in a very different way than these cgi heavy spectacle epics um like parnassus use digital filmmaking but there is this idea with this version of run-of-the-mill CGI is in a way very ephemeral because it's so difficult to grasp because it looks so muddy. So while you're watching it, you like might be with it while it's happening. But for me, as soon as the film ends, I can't remember what those scenes look like in any way whatsoever. Yeah. Because it's just like it's just like a wash of not even like watercolor, but just like a wash of very um, uniform Microsoft Paint-esque paintings that just kind of float by and they don't, they don't have not, any lasting power. Yeah. They're not even like, this is going to sound so like surface level, but they're not even pretty to look at. Like, no. how, you know, I probably don't remember the geography of Pandora, but I remember that it was just really genuinely beautiful to look at and you can make something that's also really grotesque and i'm very fascinated by it but everything was just messy loud and 
disconnected. Yeah. But that's that's also you could argue that's the dream. That's the imagination. It's, <laughs> it's 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 also always too busy and not busy enough. If, that's if that the makes thing. sense, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. I want more, I want less. Um and there's I don't so want much... like CGI Tom Wait snake that just looks ugly. There's so much going on, yeah. but it feels so weightless because it is weightless because yeah. it's nothing because, mm-hmm. but, but that's, but that's also like an aspect of this film is like that the imagination is not nothing like that. What they're doing within the imaginarium is of substance. And that's why it doesn't fit that the CGI looks this way. And when, when, mm-hmm. when in the beginning, when, when that drunk guy first enters it and it's like that theatrical staging, of the what seemed to be real set decoration trees and it's almost that like schrader mishima-esque fantasy mishima land. is a great touchstone that that would have been the best version of of what we could have of yeah. what the imaginarium could have felt like which clearly was at some point what it was going to be yeah and then especially like William if Gilliam's talking about having some idea for a movie like this before this kind of CGI was uh, democratized to the point it is where it could be used in this film at a lower budget than something like Avatar or Transformers or whatever pioneering CGI spectacle that came before. The the other, you know, Mark, Mark Tilly. Past and Future Guest Podcast always gets mad at me when I say this, but I'm objectively right. The curse of CGI is that it will age poorly. You know, yeah. this movie looked better in 2009. Um, the, the tech moves so fast and will continue to move so fast that, you know, real sets always are going to look the way they look. CGI will look dated at some point. It's God, I can't stop making me bring stuff like this up on the podcast, but the new Indiana Jones film that just came out, they spent like (laughs) three years working on a on a de-aging scene of Harrison Ford. But modern technology has like technology has caught up to the point in the three years that they spent working on that scene where now it looks like special effects work that could have been done in a much much shorter amount of time for for much less money three years i I, i've just seen the trailer i'm not fucking i think that's what he said in an interview Uh, i I think there was an interview where he said that uh, it's it's being unfair that it's being called an ai generated scene when there were actual artists who spent like years Mm -hmm. of their lives working on it to make Mm -hmm. it happen um but it's like you're saying the technology has the technology has progressed to the point that before the film even comes out, it's capable of going beyond what the special effects featured within the film were, were able to do. I, I can't believe they yeah. thought anyone was going to want to see that movie. Like I <laughs> called that from Jump Street. I'll have you know. <laughs> I I think. Remember when they released the first image of him, the DH image of him, and I just sent yeah. it to you yeah. and. <laughs> And you were just like, oh, God, just let him die already. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, unless we have anything else. Connor, do you have a game? No, I don't. I don't this week. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, do we have any last thoughts on this movie? Um, we talked about Waits. We talked about Cole. We talked about Garfield. We talked about Plummer. We talked about Troyer. I really like Vern Troyer in this movie. He's really, really good in this. He goes, he yeah, it's, it's nice to see... Yeah. 
him get to give a real performance, you know, like we, we talked on in Bruges about how a lot of shorter little actors have like stunt show careers in a way. And he obviously does like he literally started as a stunt man he's like um, the definition uh, of baby's day of out in a way. becca uh he's he stunt doubled for a baby in baby's day out oh uh yeah boy. um it is just nice especially knowing that he's his life is going to end fairly tragically very shortly after this movie um it's nice really? to see yeah he, he it kills himself oh wow yeah okay. yeah sorry sorry to be the bearer of bad news Wow. Okay. No, um, I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. He. Oh God. No, that was much more recently. I thought that was in like 2010. Or yeah, I was gonna say. I'm, I'm sorry. Sure I'm wrong. Was... He he died in 2018. Okay. Okay, but he doesn't work after this movie. Really, is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all what? like stunt stuff. Yeah. So like, it's just it is just nice to see that he got like this fun you know, witty, clever performance that's not just a bunch of sight gags at his height. Yeah, it's that... front-facing, too. I think he's yeah um, along the lines of a main character there. We we talked about this, Connor, and in Bruce, that I have this distaste for the use of little people in film as, like, an indication of surreality or whimsy yeah. or fantasy. And I was trying to clock, like... Why do I not think that's the case with Troyer? And I think it's because by the time he's shown up in this movie, even if it's relatively early, we've already gotten silver face painted Andrew Garfield and meditating mystical um, uh, plumber and all this wacky stuff. So by the time Vern Troyer shows up, he's not like meant to indicate that things are off kilter and weird. He's just another one of the carnies. Right. And there gets to be some back and forth play of this sense that like, yes, this is the sort of job someone of that stature would be expected to work. Right. Like that's like a a thread that runs through the performance that like he and Parnassus have this deep respect for each other. But they also both understand that there's a commercial function to having him in the act. And even even so much more complicated than anything in 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 Bruges is what I'm saying. And what makes not to jump off Troyer for a second and go back to Garfield, but what no. makes Garfield's portrayal of Anton so great is one that he's like a sleight of hand specialist. So the, where's the only place in 2008 that a person like that can have a career is like with a traveling carnival. Yeah. And then two, he's, he has almost a like religious affiliation to the work that Parnassus is doing, but it's not, it's, it's not in a devout way. He hasn't like pledged his no. life to Parnassus's quest. And part of that is because Parnassus does not have one by this point in time. He's lost all purpose that he had at the time when he made this this deal with, with the devil or Mr. Nick, whatever you want to call him. Um, yeah, it almost confuses it, it is... me how Anton even shows up and starts rolling with the posse here. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very unclear. <laughs> It's yeah. the, but but it's unclear, but it's also like, again, he's like a sleight of hand specialist. There's there's no other place for that in the world, other than this weird out of time traveling carnival that Parnassus still leads. And I think it's the same. I think there's a similar thing with Percy, of yeah. like these people have found each other because they have to because there's nowhere else for them to persist. Yeah. And, and it it's like it's notable. 
it's notable that at the end of the film when uh when I I keep forgetting her name um the character's name but when Lily Cole's character is shown to have ended up with uh Anton it, he's just dressed in like tweed and has a mustache and he's yeah, they're, like they're that part of his life has left him behind um or he has left that part of his life behind yeah or they never lived that life in the first place and, and then it is melancholy that like Percy can't Percy can't leave that life because of who he is. No, because he is in a way Parnassus's yeah. conscience, right? Like he's yeah. he's got to be there. I don't know. I, yeah, I, sometimes I, the chemistry I just, is lost on me. Yeah, I just think Troy is delightful in this. It's these weird things of Gilliam that, like, yeah. once you once you once you get your footing into that rabbit hole, you start it, it unlocks a certain amount yeah. of um, deep deep thought uh into these ideas but again like the film is is so substance less when you're talking about like a true narrative projection that it's taking um or any kind of again to go to the cgi thing like it lacks all sense of viscerality so you can't feel it like and 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 because you can't feel it physically, you can't feel it emotionally in the way that that you would if it was real practical stuff that you were looking at. Which yeah. I think is like probably the biggest issue with this with this style of CGI, or maybe just all CGI in general. I don't know if I will go that far, but there is, you know, Cole knows I'm a phenomenologist at heart. I am and, also a phenomenologist yeah. at heart. Well, I'm saying, but you know, yeah. I am. Yeah, we're um, in agreement. And that I really hold true that 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 the the viewer's flesh while you're watching a film is a is a substance that leads way to intellectual feeling. Thank you, Miss Subject. Yep. (laughs) And uh, and CGI does not does not play with that. Yeah, I mean that's really what I think it is is that at, at at the end of the day i see a practical effect and i like i can think of the hands that built that and i know there's a lot of labor that goes into rendering stuff but it's just it's not the same and it'll never be the same and especially with someone like gilliam who is so like literally is this like collage animator right that like he's getting his start that he's he's not drawing all these things himself so much as he is like also like moving and shifting and constructing them all himself right that 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 tactility is on the screen in fucking python and it's gone here well i would i was saying that i'm not receptive to it but when you watch 12 monkeys you understand that that world has a texture it has a smell that's a world a taste that a society built yeah because that is a world that people actually did built right that that feeling that when you're close to another person you can like if you're getting very close to another person you can almost feel their breath like touch you as it's coming off them yeah. and and you just have you don't have that feeling when you're watching cgi exactly again, it's weightless and and it does not feel like it's influencing space in the totality of how we know real things to influence the space that they are in it's sad that he he hasn't made like I what I wish looking in hindsight wouldn't it have been great if this was like Terry Gilliam's learning experience. Yes, on, on how right. To work in this new mode, you know, yeah. 
it's it's been a minute since I've seen the Zero Theorem, but I do think he has a better sense of how to use CGI in the Zero Theorem. But because yeah. it is a lot of set extension and textual digitalia, right? He's, like he's also just returning holograms and computer did. screens and VR. Yeah. Like he's playing a lot with that in the narrative. Um. Yeah, a movie we might do in the podcast sometime soon. That's another movie that would be better if it was a Cronenberg film. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, if it's a Cronenberg film, though, he just finds some, like, desiccated European city and just <laughs> no. shoot there and do no set decoration. <laughs> he just has Viggo Mortensen, like, looking at He's... code for He's... hours. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, yeah. hey, Connor, is Crimes of the Future the best David Cronenberg movie? Oh, uh, uh, man, I don't know. I video drama I is I love crime so much. I don't know. I don't um, know. It's pretty great. Yeah. All right. Cole, Cole's part of the Scott Speedman fan club. Scott so, Speedman yeah. stand club. Let's go. <laughs> Cole uh, was standing outside the theater with the Underworld poster. No, I wasn't. Spe- <laughs> oh, okay, Becca, let me let me tell you the story and then we'll go. So yeah. this is when I was living in New York. Um, the, the AMC on 68th and Broadway, which is probably like maybe the best theater in the city anyway, um, Mm -hmm. because it's so good, it's where they will hold a lot of premieres and it's where on opening nights for just movies regularly, AMC will often do Q and A's with Mm -hmm. the cast after that. Is this in, um, Times Square, Manhattan? No, 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 no. This is, this is uptown. Okay. Uh, this is the theater they go to in the SNL skit Lazy Sunday. Um, <laughs> this is the theater that has the biggest IMAX screen in the country. It's in Lincoln Center. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, this is not the one in Times Square. The AMC in Times Square is a portal straight to hell. Um, it is an evil, evil place. Yeah. Um, yeah. We all got bed bugs because you mentioned it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so. I was just oh, asking because I had a yeah. movie uh, premiere there once in Manhattan. Yeah. They'll do they'll 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 do premieres there too, but usually they do it at the Uptown one because it's okay. got a real it's got a real old movie palace vibe. It's got this huge fucking IMAX screen. It's got I this huge Dolby screen. Am I correct in the IMAX screen is the biggest one in the biggest in the, indoor screen? Indoor in North one America. in the country, though I keep yeah. hearing threats that Atlanta's gonna get a bigger one. Um, it's got 70 millimeter projectors. Like it's just a really nice theater. It's where you want to bring talent more so than the 42nd street one, which is gross and kind of falling apart in a lot of ways. Well, and anyway, I saw Nope there and I almost had a heart attack when the Oppenheimer trailer yeah, this started. Is, this yeah. is the story. Opening night of crimes of the future. I'm actually going there to see another movie because I think for whatever reason, we were still thinking we might, be able to link up and see crime so i was pushing crime i think you saw maverick no i can tell you exactly that i'm going oh. to see the micah monroe movie watcher um because oh, yes. when i'm going yeah. I'm, I'm walking to this theater becca right and i know for a fact that they're doing crimes of the future with cronenberg and a cast q a and i get i'm headed towards the theater and i see two things that i am very familiar with from a distance i see paparazzi and I see autograph hounds. You know what I'm talking about? Like those people who are standing there with like stacks of posters. Oh, uh-huh. and ha- have you seen Crimes of the Future? 
I haven't no. Okay. So I'm walking up to this move this I'm like, oh, Paps and Auto Hounds. And I'm like, well, Vigo Mortensen's in this movie, Lord of the Rings. Kristen Stewart's in this movie, Twilight. That's probably what it is. And as I get closer and I walk to the door, I see it's exclusively underworld stuff. Because Scott Speedman, who's the male lead, is also in Crimes of, of the Underworld movies, is also in Crimes of the Future. And I realize Scott Speedman is like the exact right level of famous where he needs to patronize these people. And these people know what they're fucking doing, right? Like, they know that Viggo Mortensen and Kristen Stewart are going to get smuggled out of back exit but they know mm-hmm. that scott speedman has to fucking work the circuit right <laughs> because he sells autographs at cons vigo mortensen does not go to comic con and sell autographs but scott speedman mm-hmm. no disrespect to him is someone who was most famous for doing a sci-fi action movie 20 years ago yeah uh and that's my scott speedman and crimes the future story wow. um that's our show for this week uh becca thank you so much i thought this was a lot of fun uh do you want to plug anything uh Though got nothing to plug. Woefully unemployed. Thank you, Strike. Uh, hopefully fuck you, AMPTP. They're asking for, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck AMPTP. So I'm just in the wind. Yeah, I, I do hope. I do hope the strike, the, the strike ends soon, and we, obviously people get the unions get what they want. But I also hope that you guys uh, <laughs> get to actually start production soon. Hi, Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> I got something to plug. Uh, Travolting podcast on Google Podcasts, no, Apple no, Podcasts, no, uh, no, YouTube, and uh, Spotify. Out. Didn't get to plug it last episode because Cole was uh, vomiting. Uh, I'll leave you, you with know, that. Hey, 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 you know why you didn't get to plug it last episode, Jeff? Yeah. Uh, you didn't get to plug it last episode because I didn't get to fucking plug it uh, when I was on last time. I didn't get to plug this show when I was wow. on your more popular podcast. Um wow. Yeah, I will actually say this, though. Uh, go listening to the uh, Travolting episode on the film G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, uh, an episode of podcast that people are saying is extremely normal. Um, <laughs> Did the co-hosts like- leave for an hour and bought wings? <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, Connor, you want to plug it the Instagram? It's at above the title pod. Uh, we will be back next week um for uh triage right we're doing triage next uh, uh we're gonna make if some, you say so we're gonna make some funny jokes about a movie about having ptsd from witnessing a genocide <laughs> uh yeah uh should we do mount rushmore of genocides nope nope <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime please remember to rate review subscribe uh tell a friend uh shout out to our one listener in singapore for holding it down i do believe <laughs> that you're real uh becca once again thank you believes so much. in love i believe in love um and until next time uh i i am gonna say fuck terry gilliam Stop it, I'll pack the lights.